Hey, hello everybody. Hi. <laughs> uh, make sure the mic's on. It is today. Yay, I did a thing. Uh, thank you all for coming by today for another uh, Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream. Um, kind of feel this one's a little bit special today. Uh, there's going to be a lot of reading um, as we move into this new chapter or new campaign. Uh, it's a pretty huge one. Uh, in the lives of our characters, and we'll have a major determination on the future of not just them, uh, but the world as a whole. Uh, this is a lot of stuff. So you're going to get to hear a lot of reading today that I read to the characters during that time, uh, while we were going through it, uh, and I'm pretty excited about it. There's a few things that aren't in here, and that I've spent some time working on it today, because there's a few things that I improved but were ended up being important. And I've been going in here, jotting notes down, trying to remember to improv them or to redo them in the right spots. So if I have to stop and say, oh wait, I forgot one thing, please forgive me. Because <laughs> I have a bad habit of improving things that uh, hit me in the moment as a DM. Um, so maybe the characters or the players do something I wasn't expecting that really opens up an awesome story avenue that I want to take advantage of in the moment. Uh, so uh, once in a while, I, I do end up improving a little bit um, which isn't a problem when I was playing it, but now, five and ten years later, going back and reading, I'm like, I know this happened in here somewhere. I'm trying to remember where it was. So uh, hopefully you'll allow me a moment or two of uh, 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 failure of memory and to allow me to correct that. But thank you for coming. Uh, I see Logan's here, Teresa, Jim and Smashley. Um, we're going to kind of uh, start by overarching and cover covering some of the Things that happened in the time between our last adventure, or chapter, if you will, and when this one really hits. Um, a lot of things happened during this time that um, myself and the players really um, worked. Like day, where it wasn't story-based. It was, today we're going to work in Serenity. This is what I want to do with my temple. This is what Mercy wants to do with her keep. This is what we're going to do with the military. A lot of planning for the future of, of really these people... Um, living their lives, all of them in relatively important ways. Mercy's a queen, for all intents and purposes. Uh, Artemis is the head of a temple. Darsh owns islands and is now uh, the head of a relative, pretty quickly up-and-coming successful uh, merchant family. So there's, they have things they have to deal with on a regular basis that aren't always out uh, beating bad guys and fighting monsters. So um, as we've moved into this section of the story, there was a lot of time where I would just sit with uh, the PCs and we would just sit and talk about what we wanted to be done and plan for the future and prep for other things. And some of it was just chances to role-play characters. I'm not even, it was usually a whole day dedicated to it, but maybe we'd do that for the first hour or two before we'd get into the adventure kind of thing. So um, that kind of stuff, we're going to cover some of that today. But uh, if you will remember last episode... Um, Oh, I should say this. Thank you for coming by. Uh, if you are watching or listening uh, and you enjoy the story today, please remember to click the like button. Uh, if you're new here, be sure to subscribe. Uh, if you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, uh, same there if you wouldn't mind subscribing or uh, giving a like or giving a review. I definitely would appreciate it. Uh, trying to get this in the front of the eyes of as many people as possible. I'm proud of the story and I'd like to share it with as many people as I can. Uh, where we left off last story... Um, was kind of the it was the whole dream sequence issue they were dealing with, but they had to go and, and fight the Emperor of Oromon, 
in the dreams because he had the nightmare circuit and all that stuff was going on. They also had some individual events that they took care of in their own lives. Uh, but where we kind of left off with everyone, Dandy was with Darsh in Kronayar, along with Michael. And then um, Mercy and Artemis are still back home uh, dealing with their stuff. Um, Miasha and um, Seamus, over that year, uh, ended up marrying. During that same time, um, Artemis and Draven had a private ceremony. Um, it was actually, the ceremony took place at Draven and Tevin's house in the woods to the north of Serenity, by a good day or two's travel. Um, very few people were there. Um, so, excuse me, Dandy and Darsh were not able to be there, but sent good tidings, of course. Um, Mercy and Ulrich were there. Uh, Tevin, of course, was there. Artemis proceeded, uh, since she couldn't do it herself, Tevin actually did the vows. Uh, the, the ran the wedding, I guess, did the marital thing. Um, Miasha was there um, as well. And just Lucas, of course, and Seraph, you know, the important people. Uh, but they had a little ceremony, and, and uh, our young lady who played Artemis got to plan that out. I, I asked her, did she want a big thing at the temple? And she said, no, it was just going to be a small private affair. But <clears throat> it was going to be well-known, it was not a secret. It was well-known that they, this had happened, and that her and Draven were technically married at this point, even though he still rarely shows up in the temple. Um, doesn't quite feel comfortable. People give weird looks, that kind of thing. Again, no one ever really judges Artemis for that. You know, you think in a medieval type period, oh, she's a child out of wedlock. Nobody gives a damn. You know what I mean? She's an awesome person and a, and a uh, uh, overwhelming spiritual leader and stuff. Who cares what she does in her private life? Kind of thing. People here just don't care. Um, so I never made that a thing. It was never, I mean, people sometimes are just uncomfortable roll around Draven because of what Draven is. Not so much because he and Artemis have a kid and they weren't married. Nobody cared about that. They're like, this is just a weird looking dude. So that was what people gave weird looks at. Um, uh, I told you a little bit of the story about Frank, where Frank uh, ended up saving some women and children of uh, Willowind, became a basic personal mascot of that town. Uh, he's uh, highly... Uh, beloved of that town now. Uh, and even though he doesn't come into town often, they frequently bring him food and clothes when it gets cold and supplies and stuff. They're, he's he's kind of like the little brother of the town, even though he lives almost a day north. Uh, Mercy, uh, technically, since there was no one up there claiming that land, she, ex just, she uh, did go ahead and extend her borders to bring Frank's towers inside of it, making him part of Serenity. Um, Frank, you know, not understanding any of that could care less, you know. Uh, but the patrols and such now go a little bit higher so they can, you know, check on him and things as well. It does stretch your men out a little bit more, uh, coverage-wise, considering it's mostly empty up there, but it was something that was important for Mercy to do. Uh, for the player who played Mercy to do. Um, so while this is going on, Darsh, of course, is uh, still building his islands. He spends a lot of his time in Kronayar itself, but the islands are getting a lot more focused during this time. Darsh is starting to build them up. It's becoming an actual hub where um, his ships are able to go to the Dwarven or Elven Kingdom, stop there. He has warehouses there now where uh, he, a lot of goods are stored before they go on to other ports and such. And uh, for other company merchants who want to go through those waters, it becomes a, a, a very good place to stop because there's a couple inns there, there's some bars, there's some supplies, there's fishermen there, you need food and things. So it becomes, it starts to become a bit more of a way station for ships making some long distance travel, especially between Kroniar and um, Arduel. 
uh, because Arduel being the, the on the border of the Elven, they're getting along better, but they're still not super homies at this point. Darsh is still the only one who openly trades with uh, Santriel, the Elven Kingdom, uh, and Corman in, in that region of the world. Um, so, several things, events, happen over the next little while while they're prepping all these things. Mercy's wedding, of course, gets planned. Um, it has to be a big affair. You know, and they're doing that on purpose, number one, as a unity thing, making it a big event. It's going to be one of the, uh, one of the first real holidays in Serenity. The first holiday in Serenity was basically Serenity Day, and that's the day where they uh, had that first battle on the battlefield, you know, a couple years in the past, several years in the past, before Mercy and Darsh snuck into uh, Oramon and got into all that trouble. Um, that first battle uh, is where Serenity kind of became Serenity at that point. So Serenity Day is, that's that. That's kind of considered, even though the Keep is there and they joined up together, that was considered where they, everybody really came together. That's Serenity Day. Um, but the Mercy's wedding day, as well as her birthday, which she wasn't happy about, uh, became national holidays as well. Um, so the wedding was a big deal. So we had to plan a lot of stuff and different things going on. Um, there's one very important improv spot that I'm, I'm staring at on my page, so I make sure I remember I, I cover this because it's, it's, it's important. Uh, again, there's going to be a lot of reading today. As I moved into this section of the adventure of the story, as this is, of course, we're getting much more recent in the section we're in now. Um, we're we're getting pretty recent. We're actually I can I could see the end, if you will, of the current story. Don't get me wrong, I have way more I'm going to tell after that that I've never actually got to put on paper. Um, but that I'm going to be writing as the, the pre played stuff, uh, I, I could see the end in the distance. It's still a ways out, but I could finally see the end in the distance, um, which is pretty exciting considering this is episode 48. Uh, this has taken a lot longer than I thought it would. Mind you, that is not a complaint. It's awesome being able to share it with you guys in, in such detail. So, the wedding gets planned. It becomes a relatively big thing. Uh, Darsh is going to travel to Serenity for the wedding. Um, he's also going to bring Lyra, his wife. Well, let me make... No, he doesn't bring Lyra. I apologize. If you remember, Lyra was pregnant. Let me find it here. Um, yes. So she was pregnant. So she's not able to go, which is kind of sad because Dandy got to meet her this time, but uh, Mercy and Artemis have never got to meet Lyra. They've spoken probably to her through the little globe that they chat with. You know, I mean... It can be multiple people, you know. Um, but they never got to meet her in person. Um, but over this time period, Lyra gives birth to two children. She has twins. Um, not identical twins. Uh, but the eldest is a uh, son uh, who is black-furred. And then they have a daughter, uh, who born right after, who is a mixture of black and brown. I'm not going to give you their names yet. I do have them. But uh, for this part of the story, we're going to let that, that, that set apart. But yes... They have two children, um, and that's one. So she's not able to come with Darsh. So Darsh travels uh, to Serenity with Mercy and, or sorry, with Dandy and Michael, because uh, they all want to be there for the wedding. And at this point, Dandy and Michael have decided that Dandy's at a point where she's, she wants to kind of maybe spend a little bit more time in Serenity again, which is where they spent a lot of time before uh, they kind of went... Michael's adventure to save his life. But they haven't been back there in a while, and so she wants to go and spend some time with her friends. Um, 
So one thing that happens during this time period, um, the young lady who played Mercy really had an idea in her head and it was something she wanted um, and it became a bit challenging to pull off story-wise, but it was something she wanted to work towards. So we'd been working on it for a while. Um, she wanted a flying mount. And not in a, ooh, I want to have one, but from a logistics point of view as the leader of a kingdom, getting from place to place could be important. And if you remember, Fire Moon has hippogriffs. So originally her goal was to get hippogriffs uh, and to try to get a trainer from them. And, and, and she does do that. She does get a couple, she does get a hippogriff at first. Um, but a little bit down the road, she's gifted a uh, egg from the Dwarven Kingdom as kind of an extra thank you for helping save them. And it's a griffin egg uh, that they found. Um, and the dwarves have a history with griffins. Uh, and a griffin, a Dwarven griffin trainer comes to Serenity to help train it for Mercy. Um, Mercy and Ulrich uh, are, are trained equally with it. So it views them both as the riders, although it's really Mercy's. Um, but really, Mercy or Ulrich can ride it as needed. It takes... You know, months and months and months, and they, they only do it sparingly. It was never meant to be a thing to overpower the characters. But from a logistics point of view, someone who's overseeing multiple cities, now she has this border that she's having to deal with. Having that ability to move around a little bit as one or two people, right? Can't take the whole group, but one or two people uh, became a bit beneficial. So that's something that happened, and um, the griffin becomes... Griffins and horses become her big thing. She's a very mount-based person, if you remember. She did a lot of stuff with horses earlier. Um, so they become a very... The ha her crest, which never officially got designed, but we knew that it was going to be something Serenity-based, was going to be almost like uh, two animals coming at you. One was going to be a horse, and one was going to be a griffin. So they kind of merge. In the, not as one creature, but like they're coming at from the side. Uh, so both of those become a symbol. Um... But the, uh, the the griffin, because they were in a situation where that could happen, she was already working. They have the hippogriffs. The hippogriffs are one thing that they're using, hopefully down the road, to be able to transport more people. Um, but they have a griffin. They don't have multiple griffins. Not yet. Maybe down the road. But at this point, they have a griffin. Um, trying to see if there's anything else I missed here. Darsh uh, finishes repairing that boat that they've got a hold of, if you remember, at the end of the Pirate Adventure. He now has yet another boat and purchased another one. So at this point, Darsh's fleet is like five ships. Uh, the Chimera being the main one. Um, he has multiple, multiple ships. Rokar, who was his second mate, is now a captain of one of those ships. Um, Dorum uh, was offered the captainship of one of them. He turned it down. He stays the captain of the Chimera. Which is his thing. Darsh was like, you know, half the time I'm there, I'm half the... But, but Dorum is officially made, like, the head captain. So even when Darsh is on the ship, Dorum calls the shots. Um, so the Chimera becomes officially Dorum's uh, captain ship. But Rokar has his own, which means a lot of times when Darsh is out doing stuff with um, his named people, most of the main people are still on his ship. Remember Gasket, who's his, uh, his gnome, Garrig, his minotaur, uh, cleric and things. Uh, they're still all there, Nathalian, uh, but Rokar's off on his own ship. Um, and then he had, I can't remember her name, but he had another female character whose brother was the chef. Uh, I'll have to look them up. But she got her own ship uh, on the condition that the, that the chef stay on uh, the Chimera. Because Darsh is like, listen, I'm going to promote you, but only if your brother stays here and keeps cooking for me. Because when I'm on this boat, I want food. Because he's a good cook. That's why he was hired. And uh, we all know how important food is to Darsh.
Um, so the wedding's a little bit down the road. Um, a couple of things happen. Darsh and Dandy begin traveling um, about a month, month and a half at most, before they get to uh, to get there for the wedding. They're going to arrive you know, a week ahead of time. Uh, but it's a, it's a travel. They have to take the ship to Paxawal. Then they have to go north to the Realm Gate. They have to go through the Realm Gate into Serenity and then travel a couple days to get into Serenity proper. So um, it takes a while. So they travel uh, to do that. During this same time period, uh, and this was something that they played out a little bit more, but I'm going to kind of just cover it a little bit. There was a period where um, another messenger came to the border from Oromon asking uh, for mercy or representative to speak with an ambassador. Um, and so they do. Um, and you know, Mercy's like, okay, we're not happy with this. Doesn't know if it's the same bastard or not. Mercy does not go. She actually was in the middle of something else, so she sends sends Ulrich. Uh, but Ulrich uh, is not a fool. They're about to be married. Not taking any chances. At this point, the fort that they've been building, the the keep on the border, is getting. It's about half done. You know, it's well made. From the outside, it looks done. There's still building a lot of the inside stuff. But the outer wall and such is done. It could be protected and held in a siege if it needed to. They still have a lot of the supplies in there they'd need. Um, but they have been moving people to the front, not only to help with construction, but to help with protection of it. And they've been moving people for a while as secretly as they possibly could. So when this meeting happens with the ambassador, it's uh, not far from the keep, but it's... Uh, a little bit more what you could, the neutral area, which is a little bit closer to that big valley where the fight was. And during that time, uh, Ormon actually attacks them. Uh, Ormon attacks with uh, 200 soldiers. Uh, basically one of those things where they were cloaked in some kind of spell and they come charging through uh, Ulrich and his retinue of, of figures. What they weren't planning on is that in the keep as well... Uh, Mercy had been stockpiling troops, and there were 400 soldiers as well as 10 mages. Um, and the first, and they were magics, and it was them casting spells that uncloaked basically the other Ormon, then Ormon attacks. Well, Serenity's folks come charging in as well, and uh, these weren't elites because that would have been a little bit more obvious, but it was just regular soldiers. Uh, it was meant to be there. I think the, 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 they believed that the goal was to try to kill Mercy uh, in this meeting, but Orc came in the stead, and they wiped them out. Uh, Serenity just basically wipes them out. There's everybody. The ambassador, I remember there's one big thing where, where he's like, uh, you know, he tries, not really pleading for his life, but bargaining. It's like, it's like you know, let me go and I'll, I'll give him whatever message you need and so on and so forth. And uh, Ulrich goes, uh, you not returning is all the message he's going to need. And he just basically runs him through. Uh, it's the only message he's going to need. You won't be coming home. And slaughters them. The mage is again making a huge difference. Um... So after that construction on the border and the forts and stuff, really goes into high gear. Mercy starts putting some serious money into that. And over the next time period, there are some minor skirmishes and issues with Ormond being seen and found. During this time, Mercy decides to get with Quan. And she decides, you know what? We don't have professional spies. We don't have them, but we need information about what's going on in Ormond. I need you to take care of this. So he basically, you know, she has all of her military formed in what she calls companies. There's like horse company and things like that and, and, and so on and so forth. Animal company, things of these. They were, a, a knight is in charge of a specific force. 
uh, or sometimes two, you know. Uh, but they make Shadow Company. And Shadow Company is basically Quan hand-picking people from Serenity. Um, and they work as spies on their behalf, disappearing, doing different things. Um, but no one knows who they are except Mercy and Quan and Ulrich. Um, they, uh, they live regular lives. No one, even their families, would know kind of thing. Very, very sneaky, sneaky stuff. But they want people that people who could disappear for weeks. A lot of times they're merchants or someone who might be traveling through towns where, you know, if they're missing from this town for a few weeks, someone would just assume they're over there. They assume they're back in the other town kind of thing. So it's, it's easier for these people to go missing and they go do their stuff. They do whatever they need, their mission, and then they return home. Quan also uh, being gone a lot now in recons of that nature. Although everybody's returned home for the wedding. <clears throat> so one of the big surprises for the characters, because I'm like that, is Darsh and Dandy and Michael arrive at the uh, Serenity a week or so before the the wedding? And Serenity, you, you get there; it's all decked out. All just you know, they're preparing. There's, people have come in from all the different towns. Are already prepped. The inns are mostly full. Luckily, these guys get to start uh, stay at the keep. But there's lots of people who've shown up for the wedding from all around. Even some people from other. There's some dwarf. It's the, some of the dwarves are there. Cole, who was uh, maybe you'll remember, Cole was the spy kind of guy that uh, the 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 uh, rogue slash warrior that led them in that. Cole is now very high ranked uh, in that in his clan. I mean, he basically. And his sidekick heroes uh, return that clan to them and help return the entire Dwarven Kingdom. So he's hailed as a national hero as well. Um, and he is basically made the ambassador between uh, Thorman and Serenity. Um, the dwarves come across a, a, a gate key of their own. Um, and he's the one entrusted with it. He's the one who travels through the portal to here and back. Um, and Mercy is buying goods from them. I cover that a little bit. You'll, you'll cover this again in the future, but they're buying things like weapons, armor. They're getting things like metal, things from, you know, deep mining. Um, whereas at the same time, the dwarves are getting foodstuffs. You know, they're rebuilding a kingdom. They're getting lumber, things that they don't really have access to in the mountains. So it's really good for both of them. Um, but Cole's there for the wedding. Um, uh, lots of, lots of folks, folks show up. I'm going to cover a couple in a minute. Um, Edwin. You may remember Edwin. Edwin was Tobias's apprentice. Uh, Edwin has come to live in Serenity at the at the tower. Um, he's not. A high, he's still relatively young as a mage. He's not a high rank, but he does live there, um, and he is one of the one of the ones that goes into training to become a battle mage and becomes part of Mercy's forces uh, at that point. Uh, he's, he's trustworthy. They've hung with him before. Um. I know I'm covering a lot here. We're, I'm, I'm covering a lot of what happened in the year after the last adventure happened in this one. Um, while they're building up their troops, they also, thanks to Shadow Company, you can see that Ormond's building up troops as well. Uh, and and there may and there was even an assassination attempt on Seth, who is the main knight who handles the border stuff. So things are starting to escalate a little bit around the border area. So when uh, Dandy Darsh and Michael arrive at Serenity, Artemis and Mercy, and to be honest, all of them, because they didn't know I was going to say this, are surprised to find that when they arrive, by that point, Dandy is two months pregnant. It was not a planned situation. Uh, the young lady who played Dandy did not know I was going to throw that at her. Because sometimes these things happen without planning. 
So she didn't quite realize that when, during the tribal things kicking in. By the time she get there, she realized it. And that's something that uh, I'm sure, I'll be honest, I don't know a whole lot about that. She probably knew earlier. I, don't hit me on the timeline. I don't know how that works. But Dandy is two months pregnant by the time she gets, uh, by the time they arrive at um, Serenity. Mind you, it took a month and a half to get there. So obviously this happened while they were in Conair. Um, the fort's building up, so on and so forth. So over that, they arrive, the wedding happens. Uh, and I don't have a story for the wedding. The wedding was something we did all off because it wasn't part of the adventure. It was just what we talked about. And the wedding was a big affair. People came in from all over the place, like I said. Um, during that time, there was actually uh, Sebastian Woodshade. It's an elven bard who's traveling through the area. Uh, it was a couple of months before that. Um, he is traveling the world. He also has a key to the Realm Gate. And he and his um, assistant, uh, Nico Stubblefield, who is a halfling, and his scribe, are traveling the world documenting the stories of this new world and learning the legends of the worlds they came from. Because uh, it's one of those things where, much like uh, Zack and Twill are mapping the new world, uh, he's mapping the lore of this new world. And that's his thing. So he stays, and he, he of course, one of the things, he was in Paxiwal, heard about Serenity and what's all happened in that time period, and in the short period it's been a kingdom. And he's like, ah, and here's what those guys have been involved with. He goes, well, here's some stories. So they book it up there, uh, and they stay there for several months and agree to stay on for the wedding and perform at the wedding as well, uh, in exchange for uh, a lot of really detailed stories, uh, which Dandy, of course, is ecstatic to have the opportunity. And it's one of those few times where... Uh, Someone rapidly, two people are sitting there in just awe and attention of every note that she gives, you know. So she loves that. Um, but he does, he does offer to stay. They offer to pay him, but he goes, he, he, he works in trade. You can tell me your story and I will tell songs and stories at your event. Um, so the wedding was a, was a, was a big deal. Huge celebration. Um, and bear with me because I'm going to step into what was an improv moment that I don't have written down. Um. But the wedding happens, huge event. Uh, Artemis is the one who, of course, uh, is marrying them. Uh, Dandy uh, steps in as the maid of honor. Um, and next to Ulrich, <laughs> literally is all the knights. <laughs> um, but uh, Darsh uh, is, is up there with with uh, Mercy. You know, it's like, people are like, oh, what's this huge mentor doing on the lady side, Darcy's like, I don't give a damn, hell yeah, I'm gonna stand there, so it's, it's, it's Mercy, Little Dandy, huge Darsh, right, just picture that, uh, and he's like, yeah, I'm on this side, the other knights are, all the knights are on this side, it's about even in a fight, <laughs> so that was, uh, uh, an exciting little kind of moment, and we got to go through it, they had little vows, I apologize, I don't have those, that's things they wrote, and I never got a copy of, um, but the, the wedding happens, and basically it's, for a whole week, Serenity uh, celebrates. Um, it's the night of the wedding when Mercy awakens in the middle of the night. Um, even in the middle of the night, you can, you can still hear little bits of partying going on. So it's not as bad in the middle of the night. But she wakes up. Uh, and I, I don't have to read it for it. This was an improv. When he looks over and sees Ulrich asleep next to her, um, for the first time, you know, uh, not that they haven't been in the bed together at the same time, but first time it's not been a while. Um, but she wakes up, um, she kind of puts on her robes or whatever it is, uh, 
and it starts walking. She doesn't quite know why. Something feels weird and off, but not dangerous. Something feels strange. And she doesn't quite know why, but she feels impulsed to get out of bed. And she finds herself just kind of wandering through the halls of Serenity. And of course, every time she passes a guard, you know, a salute kind of stuff, she's like, yeah, you're doing good, you know, because they're manned all the time, especially with the issues in the South, or sorry, in the, uh, uh, in the West. Uh, so she's just kind of wanting, and she finds herself walking down a, one hallway where there's not normally a guard stationed, because there's not a lot of rooms down there except a couple storerooms. Uh, but what is in that hallway is the entrance to her secret underground room where they keep their magical loot, uh, major treasures and things that they don't want found. And she opens the door and she finds herself going down the hidden stairs. The door closes behind her, lights herself a torch, makes her way down into the room, and she lights the room. And at first she doesn't quite realize what's wrong. She's looking around and she can see there's like little alcoves where there's different things. And some they're not always weapons or treasures. Some things just maybe keepsakes. They found a tooth of a dragon. You know, something from their adventures that she's kept as almost like a trophy. Some of those things are out in the Serenity Keep itself. Some things are just more private for herself. She has them up here as a broken shield from the time she fought or whatever it was and she kept that shield. Um, some of that stuff's up there. And she's in the room. Of course, sitting in the middle of the room on like almost like a table is a little uh, stand with like two little hooks like this. And inside of it is that scepter thing that they found in the mine. She keeps it hidden here, so no, and it's just sitting there not doing anything. That is has nothing to do with why we're here, but it is kept in this room to give you an example of its purses, a purpose. And there'll be like some chests with some serious loot in it, like je jewels and gems and jewelry, things of serious value that uh, aren't really traded commodity, but you know, emergency funds. Uh, keep that stuff there. Maybe some of her extra magical weapons and magical items that she can't just leave sitting out all the time, but that she'd gather up if it was time to go on an adventure. And she's in the room, and she, something's off, and she takes her a moment to realize what it is. And first she blames herself maybe for being tired, but she finally looks on one of the walls, where one of the walls, usually there was a shield hanging. The shield is not there. It's actually on the ground, almost like it fell off. And in its place stands a mirror. And the mirror is probably about seven feet tall. It's uh, wide enough. It almost looks like a door. But it's a very, very high quality. The metal around it looks to be like the highest quality silver. Um, it's an overwhelmingly good quality mirror. The type of mirror that we would have here today. Why is that different? Uh, in a medieval society, mirrors aren't easy to get a hold of. It's usually reflective metal. Um, for poorer folks, um, and then for wealthier, they may have glasses stuff, but it's almost always slightly distorted. Um, what you see in movies a lot of times, the old medieval did not have high-quality mirrors. But in this one, it's immaculate, perfect reflection. And, she's little, and she sees herself, she goes up to it, and she looks at it, and she sees herself in it, and as she looks at herself, she sees the figure behind her. And she turns around, slowly, Unhappy to see the person standing there. And he says, Greetings, Lady Mercy. Oh, perfect time. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Give that a second. Maybe another one. Yep. One second. Is that it? Okay. Greetings, Lady Mercy, Queen of Serenity. And she looks and goes, and she's he's like, Greetings, Zoltan. Now, this is the first time they've seen Zoltan since they left the source where 
Omniana first popped out many years previous. And she is not, he's not happy to, uh, not happy to see him. He's always the, the bearer of trouble. And, you know, he, there's a little bit of basic conversation. He goes, you know, kind of more of a, it's like in a short period of time, you've built quite a kingdom here. You've, you and your friends have achieved a lot on this new world in such a very small period of time. Uh, it's to be commended. Uh, know that, of course, we are always watching and we're very pleased with what all you've, you've, you've been doing and uh, the efforts you've made in this new world. And she's like, why, you know, kind of short with him. She's like, why are you here? What do you want? Why now? What is this? He kind of breezes over the mirror. doesn't really mention it. doesn't talk much about it. But he looks at her and he goes, he goes, events are now beginning to unfold. The world that we are in is here. I can't remember exactly what it was like. It exists for a reason. Everything has a cause and effect. It is a world of perfectly ordered chaos. But it has yet to be fully defined. And now things are about to begin that are going to have great effects and determine the future of this new world. And she's like, why now? What has changed? In her mind, she's thinking Oromon, right? She's like, oh, what's going on here? And he, and, and he smiles and he goes, no, no. He goes... Or, well, or the, the trouble of Oromon is definitely a, an event that you're, you know, something you're having to deal with, understand, that is not that of which I speak. And he kind of steps up to her, and she's not scared of him. I mean, you know, he's not back up in horror. He's never, they've never, he's never really hurt any of them or anything like that. But he steps up, and he's right in front of her. And he's taller than she is. She's relatively short. But he takes his hand out, and he, he says to her, he goes, the game is now officially going to begin everything before was just preceding this event. But the game has officially begun. She's, what game? And why now? And he just smiles and he picks her hand out and places it on her stomach. And he says, because the final piece has been placed on the board. Prepare your kingdom and align your friends and allies. The world is going to become a very difficult place. And he turns and just kind of walks into the wall and disappears. And Mercy puts her hand on her stomach and she's like, oh God. <laughs> so, big steps. That was the improv moment. Uh, I mean, I thought of it after I had it all written that that was the time it was going to happen. Um, and of course, Mercy brings Artemis uh, you know, and Ulrich, of course, or Ulrich Draven. I won't sneak them all down here at one point, shows them this mirror kind of thing, and tells what happened, and they're like, oh, Christ, the gods are involved again. Like, really? We don't need that. We've got enough stuff going on in our own lives with our own problems, fighting werepanthers and pirates and Oromon. Like, come on now. Like, do we really need the gods again? Why do we keep getting pulled into this? Um... And Mercy ca asks Artemis to cast a spell, which she does, and does verify, in fact, that yes, she is pregnant. Um, so at this point, Artemis has Seraph. Darsh has two children that were just born. And both Dandy and Mercy are pregnant. Hmm, intriguing. 
Well, at the end of the celebration in the uh, after the wedding, Darsh returns home. He can't stay long. He's still got a lot of business to take care of, and he's got to get back. And he's got two kids of his own that have only been recently in the world he'd like to spend some time with. Uh, but he wishes everyone a fond farewell and heads back with a group of uh, emissaries and ambassadors, people that came from Paxawal from this. Because, again, Paxawal's temple would have, would have been here, you know, would have sent some people. Um, there's a spell for Detect Baby. Uh, we said there is. We'll, we'll, we'll say that's a zero-level cantrip. Uh, detect Life, I guess, would be a way to do it. Uh, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll say that should someone ever need that, yes, I've created a spell that can do that. I would think. You know what I mean? If I can detect magic, I can detect, detect lycanthropy, there's a Detect Spells for everything. And there is a Detect Life spell. So I always said that that was a version of the Detect Life spell. Uh, that very often a healer or, or someone would use that. And that's a spell that anyone could have, good or evil, right? Detect life? Why not? Uh, an evil person who's undead might want to detect life spell in case he's being attacked by the living. Like you would think, that could be something like that there. But uh, yes, uh, there is a... Has, there, there's basically a pregnancy test spell. You know, we'll, we'll just go with that. <laughs> breeze over that. Oddly enough, they never questioned it. You were the first people to ever question that that I've told this section of the story to. I love that. Uh, but yes, there's a Detect Baby spell. Um, Darsh returns home and, again, continues working on, on his life. Dandy and Michael decide that they're going to stay in Serenity. Uh, they had a little house they lived in, but at this point, um, with Dandy going to be having a child, they, they need an actual place to live. So uh, they... Of course, Mercy, they have all, Dandy's wealthy out the wazoo. She's got money at every city they go to. She leaves a ton of money. So she can go to Paxwell and get money from the temple. Here, she's got money at the temple. Not that Mercy and Artemis wouldn't give her anything she wants anyways. They're all wealthy here. But she has a, they have a, a, a home built for her and Michael. Um, not, it's, it's a little bit closer to Serenity Keep. Uh, it's in an area that was not really used. It was a little close to the temple, uh, or close to the uh, keep, so Artemis kind of keeps the land directly around that in case she needs to expand or needs it for something special. Uh, but this would count as something special. So um, she also wants to have uh, Dandy and Michael as close to her as possible, because the closer she is to the keep, the closer she is to protection. That's Mercy's thoughts here. Uh, so Mercy and Mike, or, sorry, Dandy and Michael uh, build a little house there, and they live there as well. Artemis continues on with her life. Mercy continues on with hers. Artemis dealing with temple stuff. Uh, also helping a little bit with you know, war prep in case that ever happens or battle stuff. Uh, but mostly that's on Mercy. And Mercy had a lot to deal with over this time period. Plus she's married now, right? So now there's technically a king. But uh, I always like to... And it's always been assumed that while there's a queen and a king, she's in charge. There's never been any, any doubt in anyone's mind in that kingdom that while she has a husband, she's in charge. You know, I kind of liken that to England in our day, right? Like, well, she's married to Prince Philip, or it gets the king name, but there's no illusions. She's the queen. She runs this ship, and uh, no one ever questions that, especially Ulrich. And he, nor would he. In his mind, he's still one of her knights. He's just the luckiest one. So, um, so now we're actually going to get into a little bit of the reading now, because. I've spent 40 minutes talking about what happened over the past year. And forgive me if I forgot something and have to come back and say, oh, I forgot this one thing. Uh, but I probably will, so forgive me. Um, but let's, uh, let's move forward a little bit with the story. So, I'm going to read now. Darsh paced angrily around the common room of his home, muttering to himself. Lyra was only a few feet away at the table going over his books. 
Jorn sat in one of the large chairs nearby, watching his lord nervously. He'd never seen Darsh in such a state, and it made him uneasy. Gah! burst Darsh suddenly, slamming his fist down on the table. Jorn winced at the sound of it cracking and splintering. With a sigh, Lyra removed her reading glasses and looked at her large husband, annoyed. If you wake the children, they're going to be up all night. Something's wrong, replied Darsh. We should have heard something by now. Calm yourself, dear, sighs Lyra. These things can take a while. We'll should get words we'll get word in time. No, exclaimed Darsh. Something's wrong, I know it. I should be there. Lyra looked at her looked at her husband and said, And what would you do if you were there? Darsh looks at her with an exasperated expression. I would do things and stuff. I would do things. Lyra looked at her husband's with a look of just pity. Darsh began to stammer but couldn't find any words. Defeated, he plopped down into his favorite chair. Rising, Lyra came over and sat by him. She nodded to Jorn, nodded to Jorn, who went to pour them a drink. You must have faith, my love. All will be well. We shall hear from them soon, she said, taking his large hand. Darsh could only nod his mind a thousand miles away. I should be there. Captain Williams, where are we on the south tower? The tower is almost complete, my lady he replied. Troops there have already been doubled and supplies are full. Mercy nodded, looking back at the large map in the center of what she called her situation room. It's a room specifically with a big table with a full map of Serenity. It was an exact map of the lands of Serenity and its defenses. And the North Tower? asked Ulrich, who was sitting next to her. We're still moving men in, replied the captain. Sir Seth is there now, overseeing its completion. Suddenly there was a knock at the door. Ulrich nodded to one of the guards uh, standing by it, and it was opened. In walked a tall man in his late fifties. He was thin with a lengthy beard. His long violet robes touched the ground. Greetings, Magnus, said Ulrich. Mercy looked up at him and nodded. Magnus the Fist was a captain in Serenity's army and in charge of her battle mages. He had become indispensable to Mercy, and his experience and magic made him a powerful ally. Entering with him are two of the spell guard. Exceptional soldiers and personal guards of the battle mages, they were with their mage wherever he went. Each man and woman of the spell guard were hand chosen, and each would give his life in an instant to protect his mage. After the battle at the border, Oramon had realized how important the battle mages were. Four had been assassinated in the first month. It was then that the spell guard had been created. Report, said Mercy, looking back at the map. All goes as planned, replies the mage. I have three new apprentices training now and another ready to be deployed. And the wards, she asked. I have mages scanning the border 24 hours, moving and recasting every ward they know. Mercy nodded as she studied the map, looking for any holes in her defenses. Over the past six months, hostilities with Ormon had increased drastically. Small attacks and skirmishes happened frequently. Ormon was testing them, looking for weaknesses. Her most recent report from the Shadow Company showed large troop movements of the or on the Orimanian border. Mercy knew it would only be a matter of time. Suddenly a figure stepped out of the shadow that none of them knew was there. The weapons of the spell guard were out instantly, both of them moving to stand before their mage. The hands of everyone else moved to their weapons as well, but they were all stopped by Ulrich, who raised his hand to stop them. Mercy didn't even raise her eyes from the map. She didn't need to see the figure's long white hair or pale complexion to know, to know him. Greetings, Draven, says Mercy. I'm assuming it's time? Draven nodded, causing several of the men in the room to flinch. 
With a sly smile, Draven spoke. My lady says it will be very soon and bids you come to the temple immediately. Please tell Artemis I'm on my way, she replied. Draven nodded again and began to slip backwards. And Draven? asked Mercy, causing him to stop. Mercy raised it, her head, meeting his eyes. Use the door, please. Draven chuckled. Bowing low, he turned and walked past the guards and out the door. Ulrich immediately began to give orders, commanding Mercy's chariot and escort be made ready immediately. He then turned to help Mercy stand. Every knight and soldier immediately came to his feet and saluted. Mercy saluted back. She was seven months with child, and her armor no longer fit her, but she still cut an imposing figure. Together, Ulrich and Mercy headed to the door. Mercy stopped just a moment to turn back to Captain Williams. And Captain, I want that North Tower fully manned by the end of the week, or I will go there myself and see what the delay is. The captain's face lost all color. He nodded and saluted again as his lady left the chamber. Mercy and Ulrich make their way to the temple. Um, this is the day that Dandy gave birth. Uh, Michael is there. And when they arrive, you know, they're asking for an update. And Michael's like, I, I, the Artemis comes out occasionally. He's out waiting, in the, waiting out and... Uh, it's been a very long procedure. She's been in labor for quite a while. It was taking a long time. Darsh is freaking out, waiting to hear something. Definitely much longer than it took for Lyra to have their children, or Artemis to have Draven, or uh, Seraph. Uh, but it's taking a while. Um, I don't have anything to read from that specifically, but I will say that it was a very difficult pregnancy for Dandy. Um, and when her daughter Petal was born... Um, it was very hard on Dandy. In fact, she almost didn't come through it. It was a very, very difficult uh, pregnancy. Petal came out just fine, uh, but Dandy was definitely uh, uh, stressed from it. Um, so much so that uh, she was almost uh, comatose for a couple of days. She was okay. Artemis had her, but she was in rough shape. And uh, she, they ended, her and the baby ended up staying in the temple for quite a while uh, until Dandy could start to get some of her strength back. It took a lot out of Dandy to have pedal. They did what now? Neon! <laughs> Sir! You uh, popped in at the right time. <laughs> human size or size of her? Well, let's remember Michael. Relatively small for a human, if you'll remember. Good question. He is on the rather small side. Pedal come out uh, smaller than the average human baby, but larger than you'd really expect from a kender. Yeah, she is, after all, half-kender at this point. Um, I don't think we ever discussed measurements, but that whether it was the fact that the pedal was a half-kender or something else, they never really figured it out. They just know that you know, sometimes that happens. It can, it can be really stressful on, on someone to give birth. So um, Dandy and Pedal both came out of it fine, but it did take a lot out of Dandy for a little while. Uh, but in the long run, Pedal was born, uh, and... Everybody was okay. Uh, Darsh was excited to hear about that. Uh, this is technically the... So it was Sarah first, then Darsh's kids. Now we have Petal. Um, but it was it was a cause of celebration for her and her friends. And Petal is a, a cute little half-kender girl. Uh, and Dandy... Because remember, Dandy's Dandelion. She thought it would be cute to name her Petal. That's the running gag. Uh, but it was kind of funny. Um... 
But that went well, and then after a couple weeks, finally they were able to move back into their home. And then things go relatively smoothly for a couple more months. Things are still, you know, dealing with security and moving things and strategy and all that stuff, but uh, two more months go by, and then I have more things to read. The lands of serenity are in an uproar. The streets of every town were filled with yelling and screaming people. Magical explosions could be seen in the sky, and everything was in turmoil. Mercy Hareton Uth Weston, Queen of Serenity, had given birth to a daughter. The young princess had been born a couple days earlier. Runners had taken the news to every town in the area. The citizens had been waiting, and the news that the heir to Serenity's throne had been born healthy and well was greeted by great uh, celebration. Both Mercy and the baby were doing fine. The pregnancy went very smoothly, without any complications. Gifts had been pouring in for several weeks, and the entire kingdom was in uproar. Up in the keep of serenity, though, Mercy was concerned. Reports from the Oromanian front were troubling. There was no doubt now Oromon was planning an attack. When, she did not know, but eventually it would come. Security at the keep and the temple had been drastically increased. After the assassination attempt on Mercy's life several weeks earlier... Ulrich and Lucas were taking no chances. Mercy never went anywhere without any escort. Either Flynn, Seamus, or Ulrich stood watch over the baby at all times. Draven and Tevin had moved into the temple full-time as well. Draven stayed in Artemis' quarters unless she left the temple. At those times, he was never seen, but always near her. Michael spent all of his time in serenity. Dandy was feeling much better, but she was still a little weak at times. Petal was doing incredibly well. She was strong and healthy, though rather quiet for a baby, especially a kinder baby. Now, the comment I made there, I'm going to interlude on myself, where I say um, Michael had been spending all his time in serenity. During her pregnant, when she was pregnant and such, he was still going out doing hunting. Hunting undead. Now that they're back home, it even felt more important to her and Dandy to make sure there were no undead issues anywhere around serenity. Um, he had been made aware, you know, he knew about Frank. Frank's not a problem. Cracks open and say, holy crap, they had battles. <laughs> had babies. Yes, Neon. Yes, they did. Everybody's got the kids. <laughs> um, but Michael, after the after Petal was born, Michael stayed. He, he didn't go out anymore for a while. He wanted to make sure he was there to assist Danny. Because Danny, again, being a little tired and weak from the whole thing. Hers was much harder than, than Mercy's was. Um, did that. Uh, spend some time there. Mercy had ordered several armed guard around Dandy's homes at all time. Mercy wasn't taking any chances with her friends' lives. Mercy was overjoyed by the birth of her daughter, but the threats to her kingdom and the people she loved left her little time to celebrate. She had to prepare for the darkness ahead. For the record, she named her daughter Artis. Uh, named after Artemis. Artis Harriton Ruth Weston. So, Mercy Harriton was her name, and Ulrich was uh, uh, Von Weston. Yes. So, they merged the two names together to be, to be theirs. Uh, they both took on each other's name and just made it one long name, and that ends up becoming the family name for the royal family, right? So, artists would be the same. Many miles away, far to the south, Darsh listened to the pounding hammers and nursed his hangover. He had given the entire island three days off in celebration of Artis's birth. Now everyone was back to work building his new keep. The Chimera was currently off to Arduel, taking Jorn to speak with a merchant who wished to have a trade presence on Darstopia. Darsh looked around him at what would eventually be his family's new home. 
It was costing him a lot, but he wanted his family well protected. Luckily, the growth of the main island had provided him with an increase of revenue. While the work around him continued, Darsh made his way to the waterfall. I'm going to interrupt myself again. You may remember that the whole reason they found these islands... <laughs> yeah, it's Red Neon's comment. Uh, the whole reason that they found these islands is they were there because they, they were looking for that pirate lich that they defeated. And on one of the islands, not the big one, not what's considered the main island, but on one of the islands... Um, they found a waterfall. They did the secret passage behind it, went down there, fought the pirate lich. Um, that's the island that he's making his personal home. The other islands are warehouses and business on, but this island is more for him and the personal homes of other people who would eventually come to live here. So this is where he's building his house, is why I mentioned that. Uh, while the work around him continued, Darsh made his way to the waterfall. Hidden behind was the entrance to his underground labyrinth. Special dwarven craftsmen had been hired and brought in from Corman. They alone worked below ground, transforming the labyrinth into Darsh's personally designed underground shelter. Um, this area would be his hidden vault and emergency shelter. This is the funny part. Hidden in one wing was the mysterious mirror Darsh had found there upon his return months before. Darsh had seen a mirror just like that in Mercy's room, in Mercy's uh, secret room back in Serenity. He had not been visited by the Grey Man, but Mercy had, and Darsh knew all too well that meant eventually that troublesome figure would once again complicate his life. Darsh stopped and smiled. The new secret entrance was invisible to see, perfectly hidden to resemble a natural cave wall. He used his special key to open the door and made his way inside, eager to see the dwarves' progress. Darsh's footsteps echoed like hammers in his, in his head as he made his way down the earth. So, if you remember, there was a small, like, pond type thing with jungle it was jungly island the waterfall came off of that uh, what he's doing is he's building his house around that pond so that's going to be kind of like a a little park area kind of in the middle of his house uh and, and that's really where he's going to have the the hidden thing behind the waterfall um so after that time period so darsh has a mirror there just like mercy's several events things happen over the next little while um, again, I'm going to kind of breeze over some of those. One of those is that Darsh uh, had a vessel arrive. A ship came to the docks of Darshtopia. Uh, he was on the main island when it arrived, and it was honestly probably the most frightening ship he's ever seen on the seas. Um, it would basically be feared at any port. It's it's a nightmare. Um the vessel, the Wanderlust, was a Kender vessel, crewed entirely by the diminutive folks, except by their first mate. The captain was Binks Thimblethorn, captain of the Wanderlust, Kender ship out on the seas for adventure, and Thag, his ogre first mate. Now, I want you to imagine that. This is a Kender ship. They probably bought it and retrofit it. Kender don't normally build ships. But they got the ship and they decided they wanted to have a boat, and... Thag became an, uh, became a, and Thag was uh, had lost honor with his ogre clan had wandered humans would never take him in any of that he was basically just trying to survive on his own and was in some type of situation I remember where uh, basically Captain Binks uh, and his crew saved Thag's life and they're like hey you want to hang out with us and he's like these are Kender and they're honestly someone who takes him in and does and doesn't they don't care about whether he lost his arm or this or whatever the problem was I want to say he was like. He was like missing an eye, something as well. He, he was 
lost some type of major battle. And so he became uh, the first mate of the Wanderlust. So um, that was a, uh, a frightening ship. You can imagine a ship full of Kender pulls into a port. Uh, everyone would be horrified. As they were. Um, but the Wanderlust just popped in. They bought some supplies, hung out for a little bit. Half the stuff on the island went missing, and then they left. Um, but Darsh met with Fag and, and Captain, and they talked about it, learned Fag's story. And Fag's like, is it a problem that I'm here? And Darsh is like, no, you don't cause a problem, you're fine. If your captain, you're, you're your captain's problem, not mine. You know, as long as you behave and follow the rules, we're good. You know, and so Fag was a little shocked by that as well. But of course, ogres and Minotaur always have a bit of a history of sometimes working together. So that's not completely out of the realm um, of believability. So that's kind of why that works well. But it was more introducing the Wanderlust for the future. Um, I say that because at the point of the last day we ever roleplayed, the Wanderlust never popped up again. But it will. But uh, the Wanderlust is out there, and it's uh, important to me that everyone knows that it exists. So there's that. So like I said, a couple of events happen. Darsh's home is being built. Um, he's going back and forth between his islands and Kronayar. He's trying to keep the business up and running. Jorn does a lot of stuff for him. Uh, Jorn, like I said, was his assistant. Jorn is a big part of the works now. Um, he does a lot of things. And then Darsh... Is trying to move everything over, getting everything set. Um, now I have some more reading to do. Hope you guys don't mind too much. There's going to be a lot of reading tonight. Mercy was sitting in her chair looking over a map. Recently made, it showed all the lands between the Empire of Ormon and her lands, the Kingdom of Serenity. A few feet away, Ulrich was sitting with Michael and Seamus, with Artis on his lap. Dandy was sitting on the floor playing with Petal. Dandy was finally feeling like her old self again. It had been almost six weeks since Artis had been born, but it had been a busy time. While adding several other small towns and things that had popped up, while adding other small cities to the, uh, as part of Serenity was a wonderful thing. It also added a lot of work. So there's a couple more villages and farmsteads that had popped up in what would be in or around the edge of Serenity who were like, hey, we want to be part of this too. And Cerny's like, okay. And the borders just keep extending a little bit to envelop these people. But it also brings in more tradesmen, more craftsmen, more farmers, more things of that nature. So while it's awesome to have that, it's also more work for Mercy. Even more troubling was the silence from the border. There had been no skirmishes or issues with Oromon for over a month. No assassination attempts, no sightings of military or anything at all. It had been the most peaceful it had been in well over a year. This only made Mercy worry more. She had grown her army as large as she could. Her border was as secure as she could make it. Now she could only wait. Quan and the members of Shadow Company had all been dispatched weeks ago, but there had been no word. Even though it was quite common for them to be gone for long periods, she was still concerned. Artists began to cry, drawing Mercy's attention from her maps. With a smile, she stepped over and took her daughter from Ulrich. Mercy loved artists more than anything in the world. Holding the baby in her arms reminded how very important her job was, and she was determined to make sure that all of Serenity's children would always have a safe place to live. There was a knock at the door, and Ulrich rose to answer it. He happily met young Flynn, Mercy's newest Knight of Serenity. So Flynn had been her squire for several years now, uh, for three or four years at least, and so at this point, he is now 
one of the actual knights. She has a new squire at this point. That will come across his name later. Uh, but Flynn occasionally will step into that role when, when she really needs some help. Uh, but he's actually uh, a full knight at this point. He's been training under Mercy and uh, training with all of them. He's probably one of the best cross-trained warriors in the entire area because he's trained under every one of them in different things. He's really good at a lot of stuff. And he's overwhelmingly loyal to Mercy. One more. Okay, she'll come back later. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, My lady, Flynn said, saluting Mercy. The Dwarven delegation has arrived. A smile came to everyone, knowing their friend Cole had arrived. Cole was the ambassador from the Dwarven kingdom of Corman. He was also their friend. He had helped them several years earlier on one of their many, many adventures. Thank you, Flynn, said Mercy. Please, please see that they are fed and made comfortable. Advise them we shall be there shortly. With a bow, he excused himself. Both Dandy and Mercy were excited to introduce their daughters to their friend. Gathering up their children, they began to make their way to the common room. Artemis sat and watched Draven, Tevin, and Seraph go through their morning exercises. She smiled as all three of them went through their routine in perfect unison. Draven had begun Seraph's training several months ago, and the young boy had taken to it immediately. It was, some, it was obvious he uh, loved having something to share with his father, and he excelled at it, clearly trying to make Draven proud. I mentioned that Tevin has been with Draven now for a couple decades, right, on the original world. So Draven would have been teaching him how to fight as well. He was just, what, he was like 12, 13 when him and Draven walked into the other world. He had very basic training as, a tri- as one of the tribals. So Draven made it his thing to train him as well. So Tevin is pretty, for a healing cleric, Tevin's got some pretty uh, melee abilities. He's not huge with weapons, and his spells are still pretty powerful, as high-ranked as he is. Uh, but in a fist fight, Tevin would take out most any other cleric, except for maybe a cleric of, of war. Tevin's got some skills. Artemis had been concerned at first that he was too young. Elven children mature slower than human children, and she didn't want him to grow up too quickly. Draven had convinced her, though. There were things in the world that wished harm to their son, and Draven was adamant he began learning how to defend himself. Draven also explained that Seraph may one day need to deal with physical changes that will be difficult for him. Draven's training would help prepare him for that as well. The men finished up, and Seraph came over to his mother. Can I have a snack? he asked. Go wash up first, and we'll have some food before your lessons. Sarah smiled and gave her a sweaty little hug before going upstairs to clean himself. Tevin and Draven both sat down near her. Shirtless, both men were in excellent physical condition, though both bore many, many scars. He's learning quickly, Draven said, reaching for an apple from a nearby bowl, much quicker than I did at his age. His memory is uncanny, the way he executes his moves almost perfectly the first time. He's the same with his lessons, replied Artemis proudly. He's grasping things faster than some of the older children. Thinking the other children gave Artemis a moment of sadness. All the other children were always polite and respectful of Seraph, but his looks, abilities, and station made him stand out and clearly made the other children uncomfortable. Seraph did not have anyone Artemis would call a friend. He spent most of his free time with her, Draven, Tevin, or Lucas. Don't fret, my lady, said Draven, reading her thoughts from her expression. He'll come into his own eventually. He'll find his place. Artemis was smiled and was suddenly caught by surprise as Seraph's head popped up next to her, causing her to make a little peep. Seraph laughed, enjoying the little game. The boy could move almost silently when he wanted to and took great delight in startling his mother. Artemis grabbed him and pulled him onto her lap, tickling him. His laughter filled the room, bringing a smile to the adults. 
Things had been good in the temple. Even with the threat of Oromon at their door, the lands of Serenity was prospering. The temple continued to flourish as well as did its influence. Artemis was revered by the Sidians as their spiritual leader. Her clerics were welcome in any home. All the things Artemis had ever dreamed of were hers. Plus there were her friends. Each was healthy and well with growing families of their own. Each was successful and happy. All in all, Artemis's life was wonderful. She was always incredibly busy, but she loved every moment of it. Looking around her at her loved ones and holding her son in her arms, Artemis' heart filled with happiness and pride. Things just couldn't be better, she thought. Let me take a sip of my drink before I keep going. How old is Seraph at this point? I want to say, by the storyline, this puts Seraph at five. I want to say by this point. He's like five, because he was like a good four or five years older than Artis was, because Artis is the youngest of all of them. Her and Petal, of course, were only born two years, two months apart. Uh, but Darsh's son and daughter were born almost a year before Petal was. Um, so they're a little bit closer to Seraph. But Seraph has got almost four to five years on, on most of the kids at this point. Um, because there's a lot of time. You think about that. They did the whole dream fights. They've done the whole um, Save Michael thing, which they were traveling for all that time. There's a lot of stuff has gone on between now and then. And there's almost always a half year to a year between every adventure. You know, they're all aging. At this point, um, all the characters are in their early... Th they're right at late 20s, early 30s, where they were like late teens, early 20s, except for Artemis, who's like in the hundreds. I couldn't tell you exactly where it is. But for all the people who age like a normal person, uh, they're all in their late 20s, early 30s at this point. I want to say that of all of them, Michael's technically the oldest. Uh, Michael had a few years on Dandy. I think he's like five years older than Dandy. Uh, and I think he has one year on Darsh, who was the oldest. Not again, not counting Artemis. Artemis, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> not counting Artemis, of the regular people. Darsh was the oldest of everyone else. Um, of course, Fig was older as well as, uh, you know, and Shadow and Willow, who are all elves. But once they all died. Um, yes. Okay. So we flash back over to the Hollow Serenity Keep. The main hall of Serenity Keep was large, warm, and inviting. Long tables lined the room, beautiful woven tapestries hanging above. As Mercy and her companions entered the chamber, they were greeted by the sight of six dwarves, eating heartily at the bountiful meal spread out before them. Seeing her, the dwarves all stood, the youngest of them coming around the table to greet her. Cole Stonecutter was an impressive figure. His thick, muscular frame was visible under his perfectly crafted dwarven chainmail. His thick, curly black beard hung down to his belt. And don't judge me, I've been asked. Greetings, friends! Cole exclaims, embracing each of them in turn. He next spent several moments fawning over the babies as this was his first time, or first visit, since either of their births. Ah, such beautiful lasses, he said, smiling. Surely they'll be as big a heartbreakers as their mothers one day, eh? Eh? This last part was uh, accentuated by shoving his elbow into Ulrich's stomach, knocking the wind from him. Like he's just, huh? like a dwarven, doesn't even think about it. Just <laughs> loses his wind. I was asked to do Scottish occasionally. That's your Scottish for the day. Um, uh, everyone sat down and the meal was continued. Mercy, Ulrich, and Cole discussed the dwarven shipment. Cole had brought with them a large order of dwarven crafted weapons and armor. The dwarven kingdom had been selling serenity supplies for well over a year now, almost two. The Serenity military was one of the best equipped human armies in the known world. 
In return, the dwarves made gold as well as traded in lumber, food, and human goods. The arrangement had been incredibly beneficial for both kingdoms, and the two had become close allies. Hey, Mutley. Good day, sir. Coal usually arrived every three months. Since he'd acquired, since the kingdom had acquired a key to the realm gates, travel had been much easier. Before that, they would have to schedule it, and then Ulrich or someone on this side, one of the knights, would have to open the portal for them to come through. The meeting lasted late into the night. Dandy and Michael excused themselves. Their large armed escort already assembled by the gates. They made their way back to their home. Mercy finally excused herself as well, the sleeping artist in her arms. Ulrich kissed her goodnight, staying with Cole a bit longer. As Mercy lay Artis into her crib, she smiled. The tiny child was the most beautiful thing she'd ever seen. She could only dream of all the many things she would share with her. Lying down into her super soft, extra comfortable bed, Mercy thought about the morrow. The next week would be busy. Multiple meetings with Cole, inspecting the shipment, training the newest recruits. There was still so much she had to do to prepare. As she nodded off to sleep, she could only hope it would all be enough. I would like to begin by bringing in goods within the next few months, said the large grey minotaur. The shop shouldn't take long to build. We expect it to go very smoothly. Darsh looked over the blueprints of the proposed new shop the Bronze Blood clan wished to build on the Fohammer Islands. Darsh had been negotiating with them for weeks, and everything was waiting on his final approval. Jorn sat next to him at the table. They were all sitting in Darsh's office in his home in Kronear. Darsh was pleased with the design. The building would fit in nicely. The Bronzebloods were a major merchant family, and their presence on his island would help him greatly in procuring other contracts in Kronear. Everything seems in order, Darsh said finally. He stood and shook the older Minotaur's hands. I welcome this alliance between our families. The Grey Minotaur smiled. As do we, Fohammer. An alliance with such a powerful clan is a boom to us all. Darsh smiled as well at the compliment. Excusing himself, he left the emissary with Jorn, who would see to all the paperwork. Walking back into the kitchen, Darsh found Lyra and Sa Sasha feeding the children. He scooped up his niece, little Minara, up in his arms. She giggled and popped a piece of apple into his mouth. Darsh chomped it down exaggeratingly. His appetite was legendary with the children, and dining with him was always a spectacle to be enjoyed. Darsh had been back in Kronear for a month. Uh, he and Jorn had uh, returned from Darstopia to make those arrangements and to move forward with moving the entire family to his new home. It would still be six months before they could, the move could take place, but it would be a major undertaking. Jorn would stay and reside in Darsh's Kroniar home, seeing, the seeing to the businesses as well as being his representative to the different nations in all around the southern kingdoms. Darsh put his niece down and leaned over and kissed Lyra on the cheek. She playfully batted him away, attempting to continue her conversation with Sasha. Chuckling, Darsh grabbed a muffin from the bowl on the table. After a moment's hesitation, he grabbed two more, just in case. He made his way into the sunroom and poured himself a drink. Sitting in his chair, he looked over, out the window over his estate. He loved this home, but he was excited to be moving to his islands. Its growth required him to spend more and more time there, and it quickly became the center of his business. Thinking of homes and family, his mind drifted to his friends far away to the north in the lands of Serenity. There was a lot of trouble brewing in that area, and Darsh frequently worried for their safety. Lost in his thoughts, Darsh lost track of time. Finally, Jorn entered the room, a scroll in his hand. It is done? Darsh asked before taking another drink. It is, my lord, replied Jorn. Everything is signed. I shall have the documents submitted to the registry immediately. 
Darsh nodded as Jorn poured himself a drink and sat down next to him. You did well, Darsh commented, both with the Bronze Bloods and the Arjuel merchants. You honor your ancestors. Grinning, Jor replies, it is my honor to serve, my lord. The two men shared a look and then both stared out the window, enjoying each other's company. As the sun went down, the two Minotaurs were each lost in their thoughts, daydreaming of honor and family. Get a drink here real quick. Bear with me a moment. So, a lot of things going on. Darsh's other, other merchant families want to have a, a shop on his islands because his islands are becoming a bit of a, uh, a population. You know, there's people that live there now. Uh, other ships and things come through. Uh, other kingdoms like Arjuel and such are going to send their ships there to trade for goods. It becomes a very central hub. So, the fact that other Minotaurs with goods that Darsh doesn't deal in, maybe he does, wants to build one there, only helps grow the islands and helps cement himself as a major merchant dealer in all the other kingdoms. All right, give me just a second. Now, this is going to be one of those time periods where I said at the beginning of the episode, I'm going to forget something and have to go back and say it. <laughs> I've forgotten. So, over, the, over this time period, when all of this has been happening, a couple other things happened. Artemis' temple, as I mentioned, it was growing in uh, you know, influence and such in all the cities. Not like a negative, we run you kind of way, but in a help protecting the people, you know, honored kind of way. Um, during that time, more and more clerics are coming to visit or stay at her temple. Some clerics come and stay there, some just travel through that are traveling. Much like Artemis and her friends on an adventure, they hear of a major temple swinging through like they did in Paxwell. a great way to get information, assistance. A lot of times, for lower-level characters, Artemis would be the, the Paxiwal temple. They, they would be the ones who, here's, let me search our information, let me put my clerics on it, see if we can find anything, we'll check our libraries... You know, we'll do that kind of thing. We'll help protect you. Helps. You know, your 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 friend, your people are injured, and you don't have the healing powers. Come to the temple. Artemis, the high cleric, might be able to save your friend. She's not quite able to bring back from the dead yet. But I'll be honest, Artemis isn't quite that far away from being able to do that at this point. Uh, that is probably one of the strongest abilities a cleric of healing can have. Uh, she's on the cusp of being able to cast that. Not quite yet. Which you know. In D&D, &D, being able to do that, it's like, woo, we saved our friend. He died, I brought him back. It's a powerful spell. Um, it's not an easy spell. It's going to require really expensive stuff. It's going to be really hard on the caster. It's not something she's just going to whip out every adventure and kind of somebody dies. It had to be a major event for that to happen. And I've always believed, at least this is mine. This is me. And this isn't D&D this isn't &D canon. This is a Draven thing. You have a period of time. You have a certain period of time to bring somebody back before it's too late, before they've fully crossed over, if you will. Um, that time period is going to depend on how powerful of a cleric you are. So with her being able to finally have that spell, she might be able to bring back someone who died within a week. You know what I mean? A few more levels on her, a month, a year, so on and so forth. But um, the, the time, you know, how long can somebody be dead and still be brought back? There really doesn't seem to be a lot of rules in that in D&D. It's very loose. Um... I kind of put a bit more of a, of a regulations around that. So, you know, you can't be like, oh, remember that one friend of ours in Adventure that died 20 years ago? Let's go find Shadow and bring him back. Nah, it's too far from that. You know, that's just not doable at this point. And also, uh, you cannot bring someone back from the dead who's been turned into undead. That's a me rule. 
I'm, I've never actually seen anything about it in D&D &D rules. It may be out there. Uh, once something has been made undead, it corrupts the flesh. You cannot bring them back to life. So you can't use that against them. Like, oh, there's a lich. You're alive now. Oh, man. You know, it's not that kind of stuff. Can't be like that. So just covering a little bit of the basics. But the reason I bring this up is uh, a bunch of clerics have come through. Several new clerics are in um, Mercy's uh, temple. Um, or sorry, no Mercy. Artemis's temple. I keep mixing them up. Uh, let's see. Uh, let me, bear with me a moment. Give me a second here. I want to make sure I give you the right name. Uh, Danica. So I may have mentioned her in the past. I can't remember. Danica is a cleric of the light who has kind of stepped up to become uh, next to Miyasha, who is kind of the second in command of the temple. Uh, Kelvin, the cleric of... Um, and uh, Danica have kind of stepped up and become rank three. The Kelvin, even, even though Miyasha still worries about him, uh, he's proven himself time and time again. Um, and while Kevin may disappear for weeks or months on the end, he keeps coming back. This is his house. You know, this is where he lives. Uh, and he has a major effect. There's a big guard, lush garden around the temple. He tends to that, as do the clerics under him. Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, a human or an elven cleric shows up of his type of cleric, of, of, of his god. And they're like, ugh, this Kender's in charge? Ugh. And like 15 minutes they're in, they're like, this dude knows way more than we do. Like, you know, even like elven clerics who've been alive several hundred years, Kelvin is one of the more powerful clerics of that deity. Um, so he does not fail to impress uh, or annoy, because he's still a kender. I want to stress that. He's still annoying. Uh, but he's hanging out there. Danica's there. Um, and during this time, a, another cleric came through. Which one was it? Um, give me just a minute. This one's important. I apologize. I didn't write this down. Bear with me a second. I'm, I'm so sorry this is taking so long. Um, let me see. Here it is. Here it is. Um, Aliana. That's her name. So Aliana arrives. Uh, Aliana is... The, one of the first clerics to come through this area that is just hands down more powerful than Artemis. Like, just dwarfs her in abilities. Uh, and she's human. Uh, and she is a cleric of the goddess of time. And with her are two elven Templars that don't ever talk. Ever. And they don't ever leave her side. Um, they're, they're definitely dressed identically, uh, and they are lethal. Like, they are her protection, and she's out traveling the world. Her own power is itself impressive. All she needs, these two Templars. She doesn't need 10 or 15. These two are the equivalent. Uh, and these two go with her everywhere. And they, they, she shows up uh, a couple months before that. She shows up right before, um, Petal's birth. And she's kind of hanging out around there, um, and... You know, she, she, of course, someone of that level, Artemis is like, yes, please, for the love of God, stay here as long as you'd like, giving rooms to her and her Templars. And, and she like, she doesn't really mingle with people much, though she will get and speak with Artis, Artemis occasionally. She hasn't told anything to Artemis about why she's in this area, but it seems like she's looking for something. Uh, it's the feel that Artemis gets from this. Because um, when she and she'll, she and her her dudes will disappear for, or go, leave the temple for a couple of days, Artemis isn't 
having her followed. Why would she? No reason not to. But she'll leave, come back, and then she'll ask questions about the area. She'll ask about another town. Then they'll even go to that town. It, Artemis gets the feeling that she's looking for something. Uh, but she's too polite to ask what, and Cleric doesn't seem to want to tell her. You remember that time is a neutral god. Not necessarily good or evil. Time is neutral. So all these things go on. I wanted to take that step back and make sure I covered that. So let me see. Went to bed. <laughs> Suddenly, there was a large knocking at Mercy's chamber door. Loud knocking. Instantly, both Mercy and Ulrich were on their feet, weapons in hand. Artists began to cry as Mercy made her way to the door. Ulrich immediately goes to stand, blocking the baby. Cautiously, she opened it, but then threw it open quickly at the sight of Flynn standing there, covered in blood. What has happened? She demanded, beginning to check him for wounds. Like, you can imagine that. Like, where are you, where are you hurt? You know, kind of thing. Pushing her gently back and holding her hands, he says, It's not me, my lady. You must come quickly. It's Sir Quan. Mercy was out the door in an instant, running down the halls as fast as possible. Racing down the stairs, she burst through the doors to the common room before the guards standing there could even move to open it. Understandable, she's just in her nightclothes. No, no slippers. She's just running through. She don't care. There, lying on the floor of the common room, was Quan. Kneeling next to him was Draven. As Mercy ran to them, she could see they were both covered in blood. Mercy immediately started checking Quan for injuries and was horrified to find he was covered in them. I found him several miles outside the city, Draven said gravely. I was attracted to his scent. From the look of it, he must have crawled at least the last couple of miles. I wanted to take him to the temple, but he insisted I bring him to you. Quan suddenly grabbed... I was saying here. Sorry, I guess. Trying not to sneeze. Quan suddenly grabbed Mercy's hand. His mouth moved in a strained attempt to speak. Mercy leaned in closely, but still could not hear him. Frustrated, Quan dragged her hand to his chest and under his shirt. Mercy felt Quan's blood covering her hand, and then she felt a rolled-up parchment. Mercy took it from him, its paper stained red. Again, again Quan gasps something. Oramon marches, he says, said Draven. Mercy quickly unrolled the paper, finding detailed battle plans, directions of attack, and which direction soldiers were coming from. <clears throat> He says you have three weeks, Draven said, his sensitive hearing picking up Quan's labored speech. Mercy could see Quan had taken several serious sword blows, and several elite throwing weapons protruded from his flesh. Tears came to Mercy's eyes. Ulrich and Seamus had come into the room, struck speechless by the scene before them. My lady, said Draven, placing his hand on her shoulder. His breath is almost gone. You must let me take him to my lady if he's to have a chance of life. Go, Mercy ordered. With one quick, smooth movement, Draven effortlessly scooped up Quan in his arms and leapt into the air to the open window above, and a second later he was gone. The room was silent, and no one moved. All they could do was watch Mercy as she stared at the blood on the floor. When Mercy raised her head up and looked at them, even Ulrich took a step back. Never had anyone seen her look like this. The amount of anger and hatred on her face was horrible to behold. She stepped to Ulrich and handed him the papers. She was no longer his wife. She was Lady Mercy, his queen and liege. Get, 
everyone in here, she said to him. The knights, the commanders, and Magnus. Get them all in here before I return. Ulrich nodded, turning to the nearest guard. Mercy yells, get me my horse. The guard took off of the mountain, the main door as Mercy returned to her room. Flynn had already clo- had laid clothes out for her, and moments later she was outside the keep on a horse, heading towards the temple at full speed. She had no escort. None was needed. Woe be to the enemy foolish enough to cross her path this night. Any such fool would only find his death. Darsh lay in his bed next to his wife. To any observer he would appear fast asleep, but this was far from the truth. He'd been awake for several moments ever since he had first come aware of the person in the room with them. He lay there waiting, preparing himself. Darsh, said the figure at the end of the bed. Before the word had even finished being spoken, Darsh had grabbed and thrown the hand axe kept beneath his bed. Had the figure been a normal man, his head would have been cleaved in two. Zoltan, though, was not a mortal man. He was a god, servant of the gods of chaos and order and he was also in eternal pain in Darsh's backside. Zoltan looked at the axe sticking under the wall behind him and then turned back to Darsh. It is I, Zoltan, he said. I know, said Darsh, sitting up. I've known since you popped in. Lyra looked at the human, completely confused. You can imagine Lyra like, what the hell? But they're just talking. Then why throw the weapon, asked Zoltan, intrigued. Because, replied Darsh, rubbing his temples, you irritate me. What do you want, Grey Man? Your friends' lives are in danger, replied Zoltan flatly. Darsh looked up quickly. Oramon, he growled. Yes, said Zoltan. Oramon marches to the lands of Serenity, and they will meet there in three weeks' time. Darsh looked at his beautiful wife. She was with child again, and the thought of leaving her broke his heart. Lyra smiled at him. She was the wife of a great warrior, and she was proud of his big heart as well. I will send Jorn to ready your ship, she said. Darsh was once again reminded of her strength and of will and why he loved her. She understood him better than anyone. No, said Zoltan, interrupting their exchange. You would never make it in time. But I can get you there. Gather those who would accompany you and make your way to Darshtopia. I shall open my mirror for you, allowing you to use it as a portal directly to its twin in Serenity. Darsh nodded, his thoughts filled with all that needed completion before he left. His thoughts were interrupted by a nagging question. Why do you help us? he asked Zoltan. Why do you involve yourself in this struggle? Zoltan's face was very serious. Events are unfolding that will forever affect this new world. The game has begun, and you and your friends have an important part to play. I shall meet you at the mirror. At the mirror. Make haste. And with that, he faded away, disappearing before their eyes. Turning back to Lyra, Darsh began to apologize, but Lyra quickly interrupted him. You need not say it. I know your heart. Come, there is much to do. Darsh embraced her, then the two dressed and left their chamber. Darsh had to get things in order quickly. He was going to war. Mercy was running down the halls of the temple, heading towards the infirmary. She was almost there when she was met by Lucas. He's not there, my lady, he said. He's in a private room. Mercy turned to head towards the private rooms, but he placed his hand on her, stopping her. You can't go in there. The hell I can't, she retorted, shrugging off the larger man. Turning back, she found herself once again standing face to face with Draven. 
If you enter, you may disrupt my lady's spell, and then he will die, Draven said smoothly. Mercy wanted to yell at him to move, but inside she knew he was right. She could only stand there feeling helpless. Draven and Lucas escorted her to a small private study. Once they were alone, Lucas poured Mercy a drink as Draven spoke. Quan was not alone. Before passing out, he told me there was another. I was able to track him, and he's in there with them. It was another one of your shadows, and he's also very seriously injured. Artemis, Miasha, and Tevin are in with them now. They will do everything they can. Mercy could only nod as a million thoughts raced through her mind. She knew this day would come, and had dreaded it every moment. Now that, was here, now that it was here, she could only hope everything she had done to prepare for it would be enough. They spent an hour in there together in that room, worrying. Finally, the door opened and Artemis entered. Her robes were stained with red splotches, and she was obviously drained and tired. Mercy came to her feet immediately, her heart gripped in fear. A weak smile came to Artemis's lips. They will live, she said. Mercy embraced her, no longer able to hold back the tears. Relief flooded her entire being. Artemis, too, was crying, crushed by her friend's pain. After a moment, the women separated and Artemis explained the situation. Both men had been in rough shape and near death. Their wounds had been numerous and grievous. Had Draven not found them, they would never have survived to the morning. Can I see them? asked Mercy. Not now, replied Artemis. I have placed them in a healing sleep. They will rest for several days. I will send for you when all is well. Besides, she said, her face growing concerned, Draven told me of the attack. I'm sure you have many things to see to. I, I, I will need to rest, but Danica will come to the keep to speak for the temple. Again, the women embraced. Mercy thanked Draven for all he had done, and Lucas advised her that he and Danica would be at the keep within the hour. Assured of her friend's survival, Mercy left the temple. She was met by Seamus and an escort of guards, and Seamus was relieved to hear Quan would survive. Together, they made their way back to Serenity Keep. Mercy made the trip in silence. Worry for her friends was now completely replaced by anger. Oramon had made a fatal mistake, and Mercy was determined to make sure that they knew it. So, this was basically, I they at this point, the characters had a period of time. You have this much time to figure out what you want to have done before you leave. Before this all goes down... Three weeks before they meet on the fields of Serenity, what is it you want to do? What final preparations that you haven't told me do you need done? Um, and several things happened over that time. The Chimera was ready to sail within 24 hours. Darsh asked Garrig, the cleric, and Nathalian to come to Serenity. Uh, he, As much as Dorm was a capable fighter and such, Dorm was needed on the ship while he was gone. Darsh didn't know how long he was be gone. And to be honest, you go to war, you never know if you're coming home. Um, Garrig is a cleric of the god of war. There's no better place for him than in the field of battle. Um, his spells and uh, blessings and boosts that he can give in battle are numerous. That's, that's really where the clerics of war are their best. A lot of their spells boost and help everyone on the battlefield around them in a certain area. So they're a lot of times strategically placed so the, the blessings are helping groups as they move forward or backwards, whatever the case is. They both agree to go, um, but Darsh was very surprised when Jorn advises him he'll be coming as well. Darsh begins to say, well, I need someone here to look after the business and so on. And Jorn's like, hell no, I'm going with you. He says, he says, he goes, you have, you know, because I want to say at this point, 
Uh, I'm not sure if it's written in here. It's one of those things, again, I forgot. At one point, Darsh adopts Jorn. Officially. Not as a kid, but adopts his family as part of their clan. Uh, Jorn only has his mother. Kiwi Clan just hit uh, five months as a member. Thank you, Kiwi. I appreciate that. That re-upped us. Um, but uh, Jorn's father died. Years. It was just him and his mother. They weren't from a high clan to begin with. They were poor. Darsh took them in, and adopting him in really boosts him and gives him an actual place. So uh, in many ways, uh, Darsh has become like a father figure to Jorn. And Jorn is determined to make sure that Darsh makes it home. Um Darsh has some time to equip them. Darsh goes through some of his magic items. He's got a few. Uh, he's got some extra magical swords, like plus ones. Things they've gathered on adventures that he doesn't normally carry, but would still be considered loot. The amount of times they come home from an adventure with four long swords plus one and three daggers plus two, you know, it's like, well, we'll put these in the pile. You know, um, every time they... The uh, the elites, the Oromanian elites, all carry long swords plus one. So... Every time they take one of those out, there's two. They're dual wielding. There's two of those, so they have a lot of these swords roaming around. Uh, Darsh has a bunch of them, and he equips uh, all of Nathalian, Garrig, and uh, Jorn uh, with what magic items he wishes and things of that nature. This is also a chance for Mercy, Artemis, and Dan to to give things to their people as well. If they have any extra magic items that are technically in their ownership but that they don't use, it's a good time to bequeath. Hey, this is yours now. Here's a magic ring of protection. Here's a uh, Potion of Invisibility. This will help you, and things of that nature. Um, Darsh equips him as he's fit. It takes the Chimera four and a half days at full sail to reach Darstopia. Um, when he arrives there at the cavern, Zoltan will be standing there. Zoltan explains to him that the mirrors can be used to communicate anytime. Anytime they want. They go down and talk through the mirror, and if Mercy's standing in front of her mirror, they can have a chat. Uh, gives them there's a magical command word that allows them to do that. Um, and if it is activated and Darsh is within range, Darsh will hear like a ringing in his ears, not like a phone, but like a, a, a high bit ring that lets him know that something, he's he's attuned to his mirror. If he was in Serenity and some, you know, Lyra was calling through, because he tells Lyra, Lyra was calling through, he wouldn't hear Mercy's. Mercy only hears Mercy's, that kind of thing. It's, it's like a ring. And for the record, these mirrors are not the first time I've used them. Hmm. If you've been with us for a very long time, all the way back to episode one, you remember that when the Firemoon brothers were given their own kingdoms in a hidden room beneath each of their castles was a magical mirror that they could communicate with, that they used to do so. And that's when uh, Rafe knew something was wrong when he went down in there and his mirror was cracked and blackened. That's when he knew something bad had happened at his brother's and he had to gather the friends and go down. And that's what started the whole Nilad as, as the Baron kind of thing. So these mirrors are something that Zoltan has gifted before. Um, and now he's given one to Mercy and, Darsh, Mercy and Darsh as they both have permanent homes. Artemis, he can't. Even if he wanted to give one to Artemis, that's on holy ground claimed by another god. He doesn't get to do that. Zoltan's a demigod. And even though his gods are elder gods, they're still not going to mess with holy ground that is already bequeathed by Tavian. So Artemis wouldn't get one. Dandy doesn't get one. It's Mercy and Darsh that are kind of the heads of those areas. So that's that's this allows them a way to travel. Now, they can use them as a portal once per 30 days. That's a one-way trip. Up to 10 people can go through a portal, and then neither portal can travel for 30 days. Then the people can come back. So if you travel through, you're there for at least a month before you can come back again. 
but that's still faster than traveling all the way down through Paxawal and through the gates and all that kind of stuff, catching a ship. It's still going to save month, month and a half of travel. Uh, you'll be there instantly, but it'll take you got to wait 30 days before you can come home. Um, he, he gives Darsh the command word, wishes him well, and then disappears. Upon hearing the news that war is coming, both Dandy and Michael tell uh, their friends, tell Mercy that they will also be joining the war effort. Um, Mercy will be making very heavy arrangements to protect the children while they're gone. In fact, um, Petal and Artis will be coming to the temple uh, where they, because technically Mercy has to take every warrior she's got. The temple is going to be the most protected place, even more than the keep. Uh, so the children will be staying there where Seraph is and so on. Um, so hates to leave their, they hate to leave their kids this early. They've only, they've only had them a couple of months, right? Uh, but, you know, when you're the leader of a kingdom, you don't have a lot of choice. But both Michael and Dandy will be joining them in battle. Artemis has to arrange who's going to be going and who's going to be staying. Um, Draven will be going. Draven's like, I, as much as I'd love to stay and watch the kids, because I'm good at that, he goes, in a war of this nature, my skills in the battlefield, you, you, you can't replace them. You, you, I'm mean, not being egotistical. He's like, I'm worth a hundred of your dudes in, in a battle like this. Uh, I will have much, much greater effect there. Um, so he'll be going. Tevin is the cleric who's going to be staying and protecting the children. Because uh, Lucas is going, right? And Lucas has a uh, second-in-command who is going to be handling in charge of the Templars of the temple while he's gone, even though a large chunk of them are going. Because not all clerics are going. A few will be staying here. You never know. Um, but a lot of Templars will be going to protect a lot of clerics that will be coming. Because it's not just clerics of healing, which is the majority of the clerics, clerics of the light, clerics of war, right? Kelvin's uh, 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 probably gone, right? So he's cleric of whatever he is again. So all that. Um, cleric Aliana says that she'll be going as well. And um, like, are you going to fight for us? She's like, that is yet to be decided. Lucas will be going, of course, in charge. Uh, Kelvin will be going, and he also takes as many clerics as his type as he has. Uh, he's kind of over them. Uh, clerics, all clerics will have Templar guards. Uh, Seraph will be left with all the other children. So these are things that they arranged in between. Um... When Mercy returns to the keep, all of her knights except Seth and Quan are there. Seth is already at the front. He spends almost all of his time running the border at this point. Um, and Quan is, you know, unconscious. Uh, Cole is also there. He hears of what's going on and he advises Mercy that he and his, he and his uh, allies are going to be leaving immediately. Uh, he's going to do what he can to see if he can get a hold of any other dwarven weapons or armor. They will bring them. Mercy can worry about paying for it later. They'll work out a payment they're not concerned. They want to make sure their friends have weapons and armor. Mercy thanks him. She goes, yes, we'll take anything you've got. Because she's going to be calling, you know, runners are going to go out to every town. This Every town already has to know this is going to happen eventually. But now it's official. We need you. Anyone who can fight needs to come to the front. It's the only choice we have of not being trounced over. So, um the call for war goes out to everywhere. And, and the dwarves go home to see if they can get weapons and armor for as many of them as they can. Uh, sending all the town for volunteers, gathering supplies, preparing supply trains, uh, starts moving troops to the front line. Uh, and then, of course, she, she hears um, the little globe starts glinging. She goes, hey, I've been told what's coming. This is how the mirror works. That idiot gray man is bugging me, but he's being useful. He's told me 
I'm coming with a few friends too. Mercy's like, hell yeah, we're not going to turn down Darsh and allies. So I'm going to be coming through the mirror. And she's like, oh, that's what that's for. Cool. Um, and then now they can use the communication. She figures all that as well. Uh, the command word is the same for both mirrors. They are connected. There are no other mirrors linked to those. So I would like to point that out. There are no other mirrors you could accidentally go through. So over the next two weeks, while everybody's preparing, Darsh, as I mentioned, takes him a little bit of time, but then he arrives with his friends. Oh, you're fine, Kromer. We're about to go to war. <laughs> Next week, people start coming in from the different towns. Uh, volunteers show up from everywhere. Weston also left. Weston, you remember, is the, is the cleric. Or the, the paladin. He's like, he goes, I will, he goes, I will see if I can find help as well. And Weston leaves. This is right at the beginning. Over the next couple of weeks, he returns as well. And he doesn't come alone. He returns with four brothers, five cousins, and his uncle. All paladins. All knights of Rowan. Row, sorry. Um, so they arrive. Uh, Ulrich takes the griffin to fly to the front. Let Seth aware, because you know Seth's at the front and doesn't know this is happening. He says, this is what you've all, what's all missed. This is what's happened. Everything, we're sending people. Expect people to start showing up so Seth can get that preparation as well. Um, on the third day, Quan is visitable. Um, uh, after a week, he is released from care. He's healed at this point. A little tired. Uh, same, the, the other person who was saved uh, is snuck out of the temple. Uh, no, That's one reason they're in a private room. No one gets to know who that person is. They return to their regular life. Maybe they'll be a volunteer in more. Maybe they won't. But no one's to know that they were one of the spies. Because, you know, if that becomes public... Ormond will target them. So they've gone to the regular life. Quan, of course, no way he's going to miss out on all this. Um, so all of this starts prepping. Everybody starts showing up. Um, hang on a second. Yes. So a, a, a funny kind of thing happens, and it's one more of those improv moments. Well, Mercy, how's Darsh feeling at this time? I wonder. Oh, Darsh arrives as well. Ready to lay down the bonk stick. Um, him and he, sorry, he and Garrig and Jorn uh, are going to be basically marching in, in with everybody else. They're going to be fighting in combat, probably on the front lines, to be honest with you. Uh, Nathalian will be will be joining with the archers. As good as he is in melee combat, he's a really good archer, and that's where he'll be best used. I say that because Nathalian is there, but we don't talk about Nathalian much over the next little while. It's because he's with the archers. He's not directly in melee combat during any of the things we discuss. Um, but one thing that's kind of funny that happens is Mercy is there checking on Quan one of those days, and she's just kind of thinking about things, and she's walking, she's leaving the temple after visiting, right? And she's coming around a corner, and she runs into someone, and she falls down. She's embarrassed. She wasn't watching where she's going. A hand reaches down. As she gets up, she sees the person is dressed in, in, in very paladin-y armor. And she recognizes it as the same type of armor that Weston wears. Because she's seen Weston multiple times, the paladin, and he's been around. I'm sure she's met with him. She recognizes it, but it's more, it's older. It's kind of dingy. It's kind of worn out a little bit. Like it hasn't been taken as care of or it's been worn a very long time. And she looks into the face of the old man standing there, and she has this nagging thing in the back of her head like, I know this person. How do I know this person? And she apologizes. And he's like, no worries at all, Mercy. It's so glad to see you and your friends are doing so well after all this time. I was so excited when my nephew arrived and said that there would be battle afoot. But do not worry. While our enemies may be soldiers, I'll be keeping out for the true villains I think we know we're talking about. 
and with a wink, Sir Nyklos bids her a farewell and wanders off. Some of you again who may remember back to episode two, they ran into a character named Sir Nyklos, who was a kind of a, a, a really good archer, an insanely Robin Hood style archer, but a little bit loopy, who secretly believes that fairies are stealing his possessions and replacing them with exact replicas. He happens to be Weston's uncle. And it was Weston went and gathered as many of the knights of paladins as he could. But she's like, I know him from somewhere. Way back on their very first adventure, Sir Nyklos of Rowan. And the best part is, is way back then I said Sir Nyklos of and said tonight, and then never mentioned it again because I didn't want anybody to realize when I used the same name for Weston that people wouldn't pick up on it. And the characters didn't. They had no idea that Sir Nyklos was the uncle of Weston. So... I uh, was pretty excited about that. It was a nice little surprise. So Sir Nyklos is there, bringing in all the old friends. Um, as the allies start coming in and volunteers, not only does Willowind, again, very burly, uh, lumberjacky kind of folks show up, uh, Frank comes with them. Frank, also a friend. Very, uh, been very upset. Even before the runner came to say what was happening, Frank had arrived in town very upset. Something was wrong and stammering and so on and so forth. You remember that Frank is linked slightly with Quan. And he knew something was wrong with Quan, and so when the word comes that war is coming, he's like, I gotta go check on Quan. So he marches with Willowind. Frank arrives at the battle as well. So all of these things happen. All these people are arriving, showing up. Mercy's making sure people get weapons and supplies. She's been stockpiling this stuff. You know, she didn't just mail it out to everybody and everybody's been hanging on to it for a year. She has the weapons and armor, getting people fitted, giving them information on what they're gonna be doing. A lot of work is happening here. Um, they're getting close to marching. They're only, they're only a day or so before they march because it takes a while to prep. Then you got to march all the way there past her border into what we call the neutral zone, Star Trek reference, but into that open area in the middle, which is kind of between them. Why is this happening? Uh, their main enemy has been a kingdom of Oromon, which or the Empire of Oromon, which is a huge villain uh, group that has been uh, the thorn in their side for a very long time. Oromon is attacking them. Uh, and they've been preparing for or an attack from Ormon for a couple of years at this point. They knew it was going to happen eventually. Ormon has been messing with them since Serenity first kind of got settled in. But Ormon is marching. So, just a day or two before they're about to start beginning their march, everybody's kind of gathered, they're getting prepped, ready to go. Um, another runner arrives, um, advised that... Uh, He's received a, me a message has come from Sir Cole that Cole should be there within just the next couple of hours. He just got through the gate and they're on their way. Um, which is great because they could really use the weapons. Uh, Cole, uh, not quite the same thing, instead arrives with 1,000 dwarves. Literally, 1,000 dwarves come marching up, the, up the, the, the main road to Serenity. And everyone, it's, this is marching. This is like professional soldier stuff. Most of the volunteers aren't sure what's happening at this point. Mercy comes out to see them, and not only does she meet Cole, but she meets the High Thane himself. The High King of Thorman has arrived. Tells her that he brought her a thousand... He goes, he goes brought her all the weapons and armor that they could find, and a thousand of Corman's greatest warriors to wield them. He tells Mercy that, uh, basically looks at her and says, You gave us our kingdom back. Corman will not allow you to lose yours. Not while a single one of us breathes. And yes, dwarves don't mess around. Not even a little bit. And that's the thing. 
These are dwarves, they're allies, but literally, Mercy and her friends gave them back their kingdom after being exiled for hundreds of years, right? Um, that's, what, that's his sentiment. He goes, you gave us our kingdom back. We're not going to let you lose yours. Plus, I mean, from a business standpoint, this is one of their best customers, right? <laughs> so, I mean, there's also intelligence there. They're not idiots. Um, but they also bring more weapons and armor as well. This is not them and supplies and things. And so a uh, whole mess of weapons and armor get dealt out to people. So everybody marching to war has gear. And that's important. Uh, a lot of people have gear. Uh, let's see. Glitch says, wonder if the girl they helped out in the Ormond Captain will make an appearance sometime soon. Ah, the, uh, the, the lady... No. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Talking about the uh, the baby they got under there? Don't know. Great question. Hmm. Maybe one day. Hmm. <laughs> um, so, all this stuff gets done. This is all the prep that they've done. They are ready to go to war. Um... Everyone takes time to say goodbye to their children and their loved ones and so on and so forth. Um, all that kind of stuff's happening. Um, and then they begin their march to the border. It does take some time to get there, and then there's it's it's a it's a good march to get to where the battle's going to happen. It's going to be that same valley um, that they fought in the last time. It's a huge open area. Uh, it's basically smack dab in the middle. Um, and it's really the only place for a war. Fighting in woods, nobody wants to do that. Nobody on either side wants to fight in the trees. right? Especially when you have a large military that's been trained to work together. Fighting in a forest is going to take half of that training and throw it out the window. Um, so even, even Oromon isn't stupid enough to come through the forest. They want a wide open area where their, and I will say, drastically greater numbers will be of more effect. So everybody has their emotional goodbye with their children. Uh, I said, the way I have it written down, a lot of PCs emotional goodbye with children slash peeps. Uh, that's what they're, pe they're people. Uh, and then they began the march. Uh, they arrive at the battlefield first, which is to be expected. They're there because they're going to stop the wave of whatever's coming at them. Uh, so they have time to get there, set up a little bit, prep, which has always been the plan. Ormon comes, and then Ormon's eventually going to show, show up. You just see the marching army, and then they're going to stop. Maybe they'll take a little bit of time to throw up some tents and stuff or whatever they've got to do, but basically the uh, the war comes rolling in. So they didn't bring any of their flying mounts. It's not the place for that. Um, but when they arrive, and of course, within the day, Oromon arrives as well, and Oromon has a sea of soldiers. I have the general's name, but you never get to know it. But I know it. It's never important to the story, and no one's ever been heard it, but I have it. <laughs> um, as the they approach and, and the, even before Ormond shows up and they're setting up stuff the sky begins to cloud over you know what I mean it starts to get grey and such like it's going to storm and <laughs> again nobody wants that either they're like this is not the time for that um, but it's very dark clouds and it's kind of rumbling thunder but it doesn't quite start to rain um, of course Mercy's like is this something Ormond's doing and the majors are like well I mean, it doesn't seem supernatural. He goes, but we can't find any cause of it. We're not, you know, they cast some spells. Like, it doesn't seem magical. It seems normal to us. Um, but the, uh, you'd be, Grammar <laughs> says, it's a fun idea that no one knows. You'd be shocked how much information's in the story that I have in case anyone ever asked for it and no one ever did. <laughs> I have names of so many people that are just 
that they may have fought or killed or found or helped and never learned their name, but I know it. Not only do I know their name, I know why they were there. I probably know what gear they had on. <laughs> I have pages of that stuff through here, but it just, it never ever got needed at times. Sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. Um, so again, looking very stormy. Mercy's not happy with that. Not that she expected, you know, super pretty, you know, sunny day. It's going to be a bad day either way, but no one really, really wants, uh, uh. oh, sometimes was, sometimes the name is a secret. Sometimes it's just something they wouldn't know. Like in this situation, you're going to fight a general. Unless you talk to the general or catch him, probably not going to know his name, that kind of thing. So where were we? Okay. Oramon arrives, and now I begin... A whole bunch of reading. So I hope you guys are prepped for a little bit of reading here because uh, I was pretty cool. I was pretty excited about this. It's, it's pretty cool. So here we go. Oramon filled the distance. Their soldiers look like, looking like an unending black sea of death. You can see many of your soldiers looking nervous, especially the volunteers, which is, you know, not the actual warriors and such. And I'm, I, I, while I'm speaking this, I'm really speaking to Mercy, but it's me talking to the group. That's why I'm saying you instead of Mercy kind of thing. So if I say you, I'm talking to the characters. Uh, the chanting of your mages can be heard behind you. Oramon was a terrible sight to behold. Mercy felt Ulrich's hand on her arm. Each of our warriors are worth ten of theirs, he said. They are fools for coming. Mercy nodded. She knew he was trying to reassure her, but Mercy knew what they faced today. This was going to be horrible. Not far away, Draven embraced Artemis. You must stay back behind the lines of combat, he said to her. I will be of most use at the front, and I will be unable to focus if I'm worried for your safety. Artemis nodded, fighting back the tears. Draven and Lucas gave each other a look, then both nodding, the two men shaked hands, shook hands. Both understood their roles, each respecting and trusting each other. Then with a smile, Draven turned and made his way into the Soldiers of Serenity. Within the soldiers' ranks not far away stood Dandy and Michael, hand in hand. Many times they had fought one enemy or another, and they both knew that together they would always find a way to survive. Dandy was excited by the upcoming events, but for the very first time she felt a concern in the back of her mind. She kept thinking of her daughter so far away. Also thinking of his children was Darsh, standing head and shoulder above the other soldiers at the front line. He was near Seamus, with Jorn beside him. He was proud of the young Minotaur. He was growing into a fine man and a fine warrior. Darsh prayed he fought well and died honorably, should the gods will it. Do we send out someone to meet them? asked Ulrich, interrupting Mercy's thoughts. Some kind of delegation? Mercy shook her head. There's no need. We know why they've come. The time for dialogue has long passed. One way or another, everything will be resolved on this battlefield. The dark sky above rumbled as if in agreement. It seemed even the gods were eager for events to unfold. So, Elisleasius, this battle was by far the biggest battle I'd ever had them be involved in, especially since they were running it. Um... Strategically, we sat down, they planned out what they wanted, they planned where things were going to be. Um, Mercy had created the different, what she called her companies, uh, and were in charge of specific things. Oh, well, I appreciate having you, Silesius. Hello, hello. We're, uh, uh, if this was a book, it'd be so huge. You haven't thought. <laughs> I thought about, here's, I'll take a quick aside before I get in. 
to address that because I get asked that a lot. Um, I always wanted to write this into books. Definitely. Um, I always wanted to be a writer, but I learned when I tried that I'm a storyteller. Um, I can tell a story well. And I'm not trying to be egotistical. I feel I can tell a story well to the point that people enjoy it and understand and I can convey emotion and the, what I'm trying to get across. But the part of the books that writers write that I call the fluff, like, as the wind blew across the gray meadows, the locks... I, I can't... I don't have that in me. I, I'm trying to... When I, when I tell my story, when I tried writing the book, it sounded more like bullet points of like you'd be writing an adventure. I've been writing adventures for so long. I wrote, tried to write a book and it came out the same way. So uh, while I would have loved to have done that, I've always felt that this might have actually gone over well as a book. Get a ghostwriter to help maybe. Or maybe even as a, uh, a graphic novel series would work well because then it's just the dialogue and the action. I don't need all that kind of stuff. So... Um, I appreciate that you think it would be a good book. I, I think it would be too. I just don't know if I have it in me to write it. Maybe one day. That's why I wanted to do this, because I didn't know if I'd ever get it on paper. And if I can put it on YouTube, it's there forever. So regardless of whatever happens to me down the road, the story's there for those people who find it. Uh, maybe it'll inspire somebody to write their own story. And that's all I could really hope for. So, thank you though. Okay. So, this battle begins. Oromon attacks. Everybody charges in. <laughs> My bullet points. Battle will begin. Allow for troop movement. Allow strategy. <laughs> Several important things will happen in intervals. So I'm going to read to you now certain things, snippets of story that I have put in here that were like events throughout the battle. So these guys were playing Dungeons & Dragons. They were in fights. Occasionally they'd come across, they'd be rolling their dice, casting spells. Some people would, right? Artemis is behind the line. She's healing people as they're being pulled to the back as much as they can. Um so on and so forth. Draven's out there doing his thing and Dandy and Michael. Every, so everybody, so they did have some rolling in combat and every so often I would stop and read a, this is going on during the battle. Um, the combat stuff was just that. People fighting in a sea of people. Um, did it matter? Sure. Does it matter for the story? Not as much. So I'm not going to talk about the melee and each individual fight they did. I'm going to read the snippets as it's going to explain kind of how the story is moving along. So hopefully that makes sense, but I will be watching. If I need to go into more detail on any of that stuff, you just throw it at me. So the battle begins, right? Mercy and Ulrich are fighting. They're staying side by side. Uh, they're horses. Most of, some of them, some of the people are on horses, cavalry. Some people are infantry, so on and so forth. Um, Wherever Mercy goes, there's going to be somebody with a banner, a flagman. That happens back in these type of battles. Uh, it's meant to inspire your troops. It's also to let your troops know, hey, that's our person in charge and they need help. You know, that kind of a thing. Um, yelling out, hey, I need these people to move this. Move these troops this direction. This was a battle that took several hours. Battles aren't like that. A lot of them look really cool in movies when they take place in five minutes. But a lot of battles with going back and forth. Not everybody runs into combat at the first time. You send in your first group, and then you send in another wave, and then you send in another wave. It can take time. So this battle took place over several hours. And during this time, all of the people, the PCs, the NPCs, all the people I've talked, are in there fighting, just trying to survive. Trying to kill more people so that they can't hurt the ones they love, and trying to stay alive at the same time. So I'm going to read some snippets as we go through here. Uh, and this was this is the same order I read them to them. Uh, snippet number one is Dandy. This was very interesting. This was Dandy's first war. 
It was also different than fighting a big bad or a bunch of undead. It was a lot more exciting and fast-paced. So far, she had, she had managed to stay near Michael. He was wielding a sword and a shield, reverting back to his knight's training. Menandra was back at the temple. It was not as useful against the living. Dandy parried his sword and then brought her hoopack up into the soldier's groin. Without stopping her momentum, she spun the weapon around and into the face of another about to stab Michael. At the same time, Michael felled a soldier about to stab Dandy. This is how they made their way across the battlefield, side by side, watching each other's back. Good hit, came a voice beside her. Glancing over, she saw Kelvin the cleric. You're really good at bonking. Thanks, replied Dandy, while kicking out the legs from beneath an Ormanian mace wielder. I've had a lot of practice. The two kender laughed together. Kelvin moved his hands and vines began tripping and grappling with a group of the enemy. Dandy clapped and Kelvin gave a little bow. With a smile, he ran off into the crowd. He's a nice fellow, said Dandy. He grows really good tomatoes. Really? said Michael, grappling with another man. You want to talk about vegetables right now? What? asked Dandy, confused. Vegetables are yummy. There's never a bad time to talk about vegetables. And technically, I think tomatoes are fruit. Michael could only laugh, which only confused Dandy even more. Oh, well, I appreciate Cromer. <laughs> Thank you very much. So that was the Dandy snippet. Now, between each snippet, there were some rolls, there was some fighting. This is happening, that is happening. I'm, everybody's dealing with things. And then I move into the next snippet, number two, which is Darsh. Darsh couldn't stop laughing. His sword ran red and the enemy fled before him. At least, at least 50 Ormanians had lost their lives to him so far. On his right, Garrig was singing a minotaur battle song while his halberd reaped death across the battlefield. On his left, young Jorn wielded his warhammer expertly, crushing skulls with a single blow. The three of them swept through the battlefield. Those who did not flee met their end quickly. Suddenly, a short distance away, Darsh noticed Seamus's bald head above the others. He and a group of warriors were being hard-pressed. Darsh's heart sank when he saw what was coming at them. Dressed all in black, a group of at least twelve Oromanian elites were cutting a swath towards Seamus. Darsh screamed out a battle cry that echoed over the sounds of battle, causing many to fall back in fear and one Oromanian to faint. Turning, Darsh headed towards Seamus, his two companions at his side. Darsh and the elites reached Seamus at the same time, but Darsh used his boots and barreled through Serenity's warriors and strayed into the center of the elites, felling two of them instantly. But then Darsh was surrounded. Darsh moved quickly, striking out and parrying, dodging and weaving. Another elite fell, but Darsh felt a deep wound open in his leg. As he fought the well-trained Ormanian specialist, he continued to take wounds. But suddenly Darsh was no longer alone. Garrick, Jorn, and Seamus were with him, and the elites began to fall. The four large men towered over their enemies, and the elites were no match for their combined strength. There was a flash of a blade, and Darsh was unable to move to block it. Something moved between him and the, wep between him and the weapon, and Darsh saw the sword plunge into Jorn. Everything seemed to stop, and the world stood still. Jorn's face was an expression of pain, and then anger. Jorn screamed out, furious, and swinging his hammer, he knocked the elite's head clean from his body. He then pulled the sword from his own body and threw it at another elite, its blade piercing the man's chest and sending him through the air several feet. The boy has the fire in him now, cried Garrick to Darsh. Now he's finally pissed! Darsh and Garrick couldn't help but laugh. Several moments later, Darsh found the lull in combat, allowing him to breathe. 
Garrig was quickly healing Jorn, who was covered in blood, little of it his own. With a nod, Seamus thanked Darsh, and the big man was off back into the battle. A moment later, the three Minotaurs were back in combat as well, Garrig's battle song rising above the sound of battle. So a lot of these snippets is ways of me explaining what's going on in the battlefield. It was also, for me, a way of bringing together characters, PCs, and NPCs that normally didn't get to interact a lot. Um, I would find on a battlefield full of this many people, you never know who you're going to come across. In the middle of this is, of course, many, many soldiers, townsfolk, people that you know. Uh, but the named people that we talk about regularly sometimes never get to meet or interact with others. And I thought this was a fun way to kind of do that. So, um, let's see, where was I? Um, here we go. Snippet number three is Flynn. Flynn was the only knight of serenity who had never been to war. As leader of horse company, the cavalry, his cavalry had been the first into combat. Flynn had been trained by the best, though, and he kept his head. He and 20 of his command had been separated from his company and were surrounded by Oromanian infantry. They were giving a good showing, but were being taken down one by one. Suddenly, Flynn's horse roared up, stabbed from underneath. Flynn was thrown and hit the ground hard. He scrambled for his weapon, but was kicked in the face hard, knocking him back down. Flynn looked up through the blood in his eyes to see an Oromanian soldier raise his axe. Flynn reached for his dagger, but knew it would be too late. But the blow never came. Instead, the enemy's soldier fell backwards, two arrows where his eyes used to be. Then Flynn was surrounded by men. Each was dressed in matching plate mail, bearing the same crest, almost glowing with a holy light. An elderly man, whose armor was much more worn than the others, held out his hand, helping Flynn up. The man's large gray mustache rode above, the, rode above a large smile. "'That was a close one there, lad,' said Sir Nyklos. "'Glad we saw you when we did!' Thank you, sir, replied Flynn, retrieving his huge two-handed sword from his dead horse. I am in your debt. And again, I should say that Flynn wields a two-handed sword, the first person in the knights to do that. Hello, Terry. Not yet, young knight. Uh, nay, young knight, said Sir Weston, running a soldier through. Uh, oh, here we go. I'm in your debt. As long as you fight on the side of truth, you shall never own the knights of Rome. Come, lad, said Sir Nyklos. Let us show these bastards to fear the light. Then Nyklos leaned closely to Flynn. But keep your eyes peeled, son. There's fairies all over the place. With a wink, the old man reached up to pull his helm's visor down. He stopped, though, a strange look on his face. The last thing several Oromanian soldiers ever heard was, This isn't my helm! Damn fairies! I really wanted to find a way to bring Sir Nyklos back. Uh, I... I always loved him as an NPC. I loved him uh, at how overly over the top he was. Um, but I could never really find the best time to make him show up without being too overpowered. He's a hell of an archer. And in a group, he probably could do more damage than most of them. So I didn't want him to just show up and, and do all the work. So this was a good opportunity for him to come in in a sea of fighting where it would definitely be helpful, but he wouldn't own everything. Yes, Terry, I feel much better. Thank you very much. I got a couple hours rest today. That really, really helped. All right. So that was snippet number three. So again, more battle, more fighting. Things happen. Control, so on. This, this took a while for us to go through as well. Snippet four, Mercy. Mercy felt like she'd been in battle for days. Hundreds of faces had flashed before her like a dream. 
She was side by side with Ulrich, surrounded by 15 of her personal guard. She'd started with many more. Several of them had been separated from her, including Quan. She had not seen him in quite a while. Her only option was to keep fighting. Every Ormanian that fell was one less threat to serenity. Mercy gave no quarter and spared no one. She could not afford to. She was fighting for the survival of all that she loved. The sky above was growing darker, the clouds swirling. Um, Edwin was part of her escort. Edwin, you'll remember, was the mage that came out, mentioned earlier. But advised it was not the mages causing the peculiar weather. This only caused Mercy to worry more. What was that bastard planning? Because you remember, well, while uh, Oramon does not have wizards, they do have many clerics of Pandora. Uh, let's see. Yeah. She had a second and looked out at the sea of enemy soldiers. There was no end to them. They would have been completely overrun by now if it wasn't for Magnus and the mages. As if to accentuate her point, a ball of fire flew overhead, exploding into the enemy ranks not far away. Mercy could hear the screams of the dying. My lady came a call from nearby. Looking, she saw one of her escorts pointing. Following his direction, she saw Sir Debon in the distance. He and his escort were completely surrounded by enemy soldiers, including several elites. Rallying her escort, she and Ulrich began trying to make their way towards them. After several long minutes that seemed to take forever, they broke through the enemy soldiers, reaching him and his men. Mercy could see Debon had received several serious injuries, but still he fought on. My lady, he cried out, we're being cut off. You must make your way back to our forces. I will hold the line. Get yourself to safety. Not now or ever, Mercy yelled back. Either we make it back together or we fall as one. I will not leave you. Encouraged by their lady's words, the warriors of Serenity nearby yelled out in agreement. Cries of for Serenity and for the Queen could be heard from around her as her soldiers surged, pushing back against the Ormanian lines. Together they fought hard, holding the line and then eventually beginning to gain ground. Inside, Mercy swelled with pride. The citizens of Serenity were an amazing lot. Oppressed and abused for generations, they finally had been given the chance at a good life. Now that a new enemy had risen to take it from them, they stood together as one, each willing to give his life for the other, all in the hopes of ensuring a life for their children. Mercy was their lady and their queen. She could only hope she could live up to the standard set by so many amazing men and women. Mercy was determined to try, and she would start by showing these Oromanian filth that serenity would not stand their threat any longer. Side by side, she stood with those she loved, giving everything she had. If they wanted to reach her home, they would have to go through her first. As I was going to say, that's a clear spell in 5e. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my son just started listening to Merle. Excellent, MT. I'd be flattered. I'd, how old is your son, if I may ask? Uh, I would love to hear what uh, potentially a, 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 younger, a younger viewer would think. Um, so uh, this, again, all going on. The battle has been going on for a while at this point. Um, a lot of people falling. I'm still, again, rolling and such. And then we move into the next snippet. And the next snippet is Mayor Dabs. You may remember Mayor Dabs as the mayor of Moonbrook, the probably the largest town outside of Serenity Kingdom itself, um, and one of the first towns to become loyal to Serenity. Um, it was way back in Moonbrook where they fought Ormond for the very first time. Um, kind of set all of this in motion. Mayor Dabs pulled his sword from the enemy soldier's body just in time to parry the blow from another. A serenity soldier ran the man through, saving him just in time. 
Dabs was not a soldier, but like the other volunteers of Serenity, he had come to defend his home. He was decent with a sword, but had barely survived several encounters. He didn't know how much longer he'd be able to make it at this rate. Suddenly he heard a large amount of screams. Looking in the direction of the sound, he was filled with dread. He had seen Ormanian elites years before at the Battle of Moonbrook, and now he could see a group of 50 of them had broken through the front lines and were slaughtering the Serenity volunteers nearby. Dabs knew he was no match for such a well-trained enemy, but he began to make his way towards them anyways. He knew that his life would be over in the next few minutes, but in, in his heart, all he could think was that if he managed to kill even just one of them, that multiple of his countrymen would be spared. It was a sacrifice he knew that he was willing to make. Others saw him go and moving and feeling the same way they followed him. Not far away, he saw the mayor of Oakleaf, Meg Eladonia. Meeting her eyes, they nodded to each other in agreement, both fighting their way towards the enemy. And then he was there, standing before a sea of death. As they came upon him, he said a silent prayer. Great goddess, please accept my sacrifice and take me into the light. But before you do, please give me the strength to send at least one of these beasts back to the darkness that spawned it. Gripping his sword tightly, Dab charged toward, towards the elites and was stopped by a hand on his shoulder. Dabs looked into the face of a man he'd never seen. Not today, my friend, said the tall man, his long white hair flowing over his shoulders. You still have good to do, and today is not your day to die. Instantly the man was gone, moving faster than any human ever could. He exploded forward into the elites, his two longswords cutting through their forces, decimating them like they were inexperienced farmers. Dabs had never seen anything like it. The man moved and weaved through the enemy like a dancer of death, and all the elites turned on him, tens of them against one man. Dabs didn't know who or what that man was, but in his heart he knew that he too was a son of Serenity, and he would not fight alone this day. Serenity, Dabs cried out, raising his sword. From around him his cry was echoed, and then he charged the elites. He knew, uh, and as he charged the elites, he knew there were others with him. The man with the white hair was one of them, and they would fight at his side no matter the odds against them. Children of Serenity all. Um, so that was Draven's moment. And you can imagine Draven's been talked about. Everyone knows of Draven. Majority of people have never seen him, especially in the other towns. So at first we see him with all the other weird things, and dwarves and minotaurs and all this, Frank walking around. It's a lot of weird stuff on the field, right? You know, Kender casting Kender spells. There's a lot of things going on. Um, it's hard to notice things, but this is the first time he's ever come across Draven. Uh, or any of the mayors had it really seen Draven at this point. After some more battling, we move on to snippet number six, which is Quan. Quan moved across the battlefield, killing man after man, searching for mercy. They'd become separated much earlier, and try as he might, he'd been unable to find her in the sea of bodies. Every second away filled him with more fear for her safety. Quan was set upon by three enemy soldiers. In less than ten seconds, he'd beheaded one, cut the right leg off another, and pulled the last one's throat out with his offhand, never once breaking stride. Quan was honor brown to protect his lady. On his ancestors, he had sworn fealty to her, and his final breath would be taken from him before he would let any harm come to her or her family. A sharp pain in his left shoulder caused him to stumble forward. 
He saw the shaft of a crossbow bolt protruding from his flesh. Angrily, he searched and found its source. A very large Ormanian soldier and eight of his companions were approaching him. He could tell by the large man's armor he was a captain of some kind and undoubtedly well-trained. I heard a slanted-eyed man escaped our men recently. I'm surprised you survived. A mistake we shall not repeat. Quan was concerned. He was good, but these odds were too much even for him. It was, th <laughs> it was then that he saw the banner in the distance, past the men. That was his lady's banner, and these men stood between her and Quan. His lady so close, he knew the odds just got better. So be it, said Quan, moving forward to meet them. Quan managed to drop two of them quickly, but the bolt in his shoulder slowed him, and he took a slash to the abdomen. He felled another, but the big man was there, and Quan was parrying blow after blow. The man was good, and if Quan had been at his peak, he would have been no match for him, but Quan was far from his peak. Quan's sword was knocked from him. The large man moved in quickly, but then stopped. In horror, the man's gaze went from Quan's face to above him. A large metal blade swung over Quan's head, severing not only the man's head, but shoulders clean off of his body. Quan turned and looked up. Hi, Quan, said Frank. Quan smiled up at his big friend. Hello, my friend. Quan hurt, the big man said, looking concerned. Frank take you to pretty healer, lady? No, Frank, Quan replied. I must get to my lady. I have to get to Mercy. Frank looked at him confused for a moment, then over the battlefield to Mercy's banner in the distance. Okay, he said finally, a big smile on his face. Laughing in glee, swinging his large axe, he cleaved three Ormanians in half. Laughing, he began to chop a path towards Mercy. Smiling, Quan picked up his sword, shaking his head at the big man's glee. Following his large friend, he headed towards his lady. Um, so, again, that link exists. And while Quan feels it some, Frank feels it more. Frank can... His life energy was literally... He's brought to life by taking some of Quan's. Um, and so, at that point, you'll notice a lot of times I mentioned Quan's not his peak. Quan's a little more hurt than he used to be. Quan lost a little of his overall physical strength and such in that. He's still a skill. He didn't lose any of his memories, but he does get tired a little bit easier, and he's he's learning that. Um, but when he's with Frank, that seems to go away. When they're close together, it's like he can kind of get some of that back. Uh, but Frank can sense him at great distances. Like, the, you know, he, he'll, he doesn't quite know, hey, that's Quan, but he's like, I need to go this way, and I don't know why. It's when Frank, w uh, Frank was able to sense Quan much further than normal when Quan was near death, just from the pain and suffering he's go through. Quan, uh, Frank felt that, and it really, really bothered him. He knew something was wrong, and he didn't know why. Um, so again, moving forward, we go to Snippet, Mercy number two. The battle had been raging for a very long time, and the Serenity forces had lost little ground. Time was taking its toll, though, and Mercy could see weaknesses opening in the defenses. The dwarves had been a gift from the gods. The dwarven high king and his men showed no signs of fatigue. The dwarven forces hadn't had an enemy to fight in generations, and they seemed to be venting their, that frustration on the battlefield. For centuries, they'd been exiled from their ancestral home with no clear enemy to blame. It seemed to Mercy that the dwarves were actually enjoying themselves. The Serenity Mages, on the other hand, were having issues. Most of the weaker and younger mages had run out of spells long ago. Fireballs and lightning bolts appeared less and less frequently, 
yet Ormond still vastly outnumbered her troops. Worst of all, the sky was getting worse. It rumbled and swirled, growing darker and darker. It looked like any moment they could be barraged with rain or even worse. Mercy, Oric, and her remaining escort had fallen back, trying to get their bearings in an attempt to see where they would be most needed. Sadly, they were needed everywhere. It tore at Mercy to see how much smaller her forces looked. Thousands of bodies lay upon the ground, the dead of both sides pile upon each other. Mercy knew they couldn't keep this up forever. And then at, at that moment, we go directly into snippet number eight, which is Artemis. Artemis stood there, surrounded by the injured. As far as she could see, bodies laid on the ground. Her clerics moved among them, saving who they could. Artemis' robes were stained with blood and tears, but she kept moving. She tried to keep her mind on her task, but it was growing harder and harder. She had not seen any of her friends in hours, nor of Draven. Did they even now lie upon the battlefield, injured or dying? Did they need her? She wanted to find them, but knew she could not. Earlier, several elites had broken into camp. Several clerics had died before they were put down by Lucas and the Templars. Lucas, too, was covered in blood, though none of it his own. He had been by Artemis' side all day, refusing to leave for even a moment. He assisted her in any way that he could, but his eyes never stopped scanning the horizon. Artemis knew that if the enemy appeared to be breaking through, that he would see to it she was evacuated. Artemis turned to move to the next soldier, but was surprised to find herself standing face to face with Aliana, the cleric of Chiara. Lucas was also surprised, as he'd not seen them arrive. That's not normal. Artemis was about to speak when the sky erupted in the loudest thunder she'd ever heard in all of her years. The wind instantly picked up as well, supplies and tents blowing everywhere. Artemis heard a loud crack and turned towards the battlefield just in time to see lightning crackle from the sky, striking the field. The sky above seems to swirl faster and other lightning strikes crashed into the field below. Artemis turned back to Aliana, who stepped very close to her. You must tell Mercy to pull her men back, she said, her voice barely audible above the howling wind. You must tell her to get out of there now. Why? Artemis yelled back. What is happening? There's no time, Aliana replied, looking up at the sky in fear. Get her out of there. Save as many as you can before it's too late. It's coming. Without another word, the cleric turned and, followed by her elven bodyguards, walked straight towards the battlefield. Artemis looked at Lucas. Their friends' lives were in danger, and she had to find a way to warn them. Seeing the look in her eyes, Lucas sighed and then nodded. He took her hand and then waved to a group of nearby Templars. As Artemis and Lucas began to walk towards the battlefield, she could have sworn she heard Lucas mumble, He's going to kill me. So at this moment, somebody, Artemis specifically, had a specific task to achieve. Everyone else is fighting for survival and trying to hold the line. But Artemis has a specific task. And there were many different ways she could try to do it. She could go out in the field and try to find mercy herself. Uh, she could try to find someone who could. And so there were several options to her. I had multiple noted here at things that are ways she could do that, as well as try to fight her way through. Um, Artemis, not that foolish. Trying to fight her way to Mercy, who's she knows Mercy's going to be in whatever the worst place is on the battlefield, where she's needed the most. Getting to her is not going to... Dying on the field is not going to help Mercy at all. So she needs to find another way down there. So her options really came to be, okay, um, how do I do this? How do we get there? 
um, what she does is uh, she actually reaches out to the mages. So she goes to Thakar first. Now Thakar, being battle mages, they're in the battle casting spells. And I'll just there are some mages just up on a hill. And I want to stress that not just the battle mages are there. The mages of Serenity are all there. The battle mages are in the battle. They're trained to fight with the soldiers and the warriors, and to be able to fight as a unit. But other mages that just know how to shoot fireballs and magic, they're up on a hill and up behind just barraging spells at the battlefield as long as they can. And you can imagine this is a battle for survival for them as well. Oromon hates mages. So they're equipped with wands and potions and they brought whatever magic items they can get a hold of. Uh, they probably even had some come in from Paxawal to help and they're all just casting what spells they can. So Artemis decides that she's going to go and see if Thakar can get a message there. She knows that Edwin is traveling with uh, Mercy if he's still alive. Maybe he can get a message to him. Other option could be that she could literally call out for Draven. Kid you not, no matter where he is on the battlefield, he would have hurt her. Uh, she did not do that. Um, she also could look to find a knight, and if she could have found any of the knights, she could send him in. So when she goes to Thakar, Thakar says he can try to get a message down there, but he's not sure... Uh, if Edwin is alive enough to get it. like he, he, I can't sense if he's alive, but I can try to cast a spell that would find him. He knows Edwin enough to do so. Mercy is not comfortable with that enough. She decides a second option. Or sorry, Artemis decides that. So she goes and sees if she can find someone who can maybe get to her better. And she comes across one of Mercy's knights. Seth, who is injured, had fallen back. He'd been relatively injured, but a cleric could just kind of heal him up. He was still sore and injured some, but he was able to fight again. And Artemis managed to get to him, and she's like, you need to get out there and find... I need to get this message to Mercy. Mercy's got to start pulling people back. And he's like, why? And he goes, I don't know. But this is what's happened. As you can see, the storm is getting worse. Something bad is coming, and I don't know what it is. Seth, not knowing for sure either, says he'll try his best to get the message and goes back into the battle. So... Of the options, Edwin is in fact alive, and he get he, he at this point he gets the message, and he tells Mercy. Mercy's like, I can't just pull people back on the field, like it's a, it's a huge battlefield. It's not that's not an easy thing to do in the middle of a fight. Um, but she starts to see if she can pull back people at least smartly enough to not give away too much area. Try to pull the injured out, and she's giving orders now for anyone who can to try to get someone out, pull out the injured, pull out the whatever. Um. And sure enough, eventually Seth gets there with a message as well and says that Artemis sent him with that message. Um, that has more weight with Mercy. Artemis is saying this. Artemis wouldn't say this unless there's a reason. And while he meant, she may not know what that reason is, she trusts Artemis. So without much other options, the only thing she can think to do is to try to pull a retreat. Um, she doesn't want to. This is not how she expected things to be. But in the middle of a battle where they were starting to lose, they were, they were at that point, they are going to have problems. She now has to try to pull her men back. And the message, get them out of there, save as many as you can, mortified her. Because if it's something that, if is, it, is it the emperor coming? Is he going to cast some type of spell that's going to wipe out her people? She has to get as many people back as she can. So she starts pulling a retreat back, giving an order to retreat. Um, even as she does, you can imagine Oramon... That's just going to embolden them. Like, ha-ha, they're retreating. They know we're winning. That's going to make them charge and fight even harder. Which is the problem with retreating, because now you're trying to back up and fight, which is not easy to do. Or if you turn, you expose your back to the enemy. Very hard to handle. So, 
As Serenity retreats, Oramon is renewed and begin to give chase. Um, as this is going on, more lightning bolts are literally coming from the sky, hitting the battlefield. Um, at first, hitting people of kind of on both sides a little bit. But as as Mercy's people turn back, Oramon's moving forward in the center of the field of the of the of the. The, the valley is more Oramon as they're moving. So Oramon's actually getting hit a little bit more by this, which is slightly beneficial. It's about that time that a series of chain lightning bolts come crashing down between the two lines of scrimmage. Now you're going to understand that it's not a solid line, but it's close. And the explosions, you can't help but back up from it. And both Oramon and Serenity have to back up from this, and so there's actually it creates a bit of a space. Not exactly, some people are still fighting, but it does cause a moment of hey, what's all this? This isn't normal. But as these lightnings are cracking almost down in a line, it almost severs the lines of fight where both sides are having to step back a bit, almost pulling back the fight. And then the wind picks up hard, almost to the point that it's blowing people over. Mercy has given out to her people flags, banners, whatever they use to, because, you know, horns, bugles, whatever they're using to notify people, get out, get back, and they start to flee. Ormond now is like, okay, um, maybe they're not scared of us. And Ormond slows down and they stop going. Their generals start pulling their men back a little bit as well, though they're not quite as successful. A sound begins, low at first, but gaining in volume, almost like a roar of flames and heat, and it's coming from the sky above. The clouds are almost swirling like a tornado, but without the funnel at this point. And it's, this sound above everyone grows louder and louder as the clouds go from a dark purple, they start to brighten up in color, like there's like a flashlight on the other side kind of thing, if you understand what I'm saying. Shining a light on the other side. At this point, everyone knows something's weird and people are trying to back off the field as quickly as they can. But the roar gets louder to the point that it almost becomes deafening. And the clouds themselves blow apart as a huge ball of flame and rock comes from the sky towards the battle. Now, this thing's the size of a small house. You know, it's not like massive, world-destructing meteor, but it's a big ball of rock and fire, and it's going straight at the middle of the valley. Most of Serenity is out of the range at that point. Some of Ormon is, but it hits the earth in a huge explosion. The, the shockwave literally blows almost everyone off their feet. Anyways, who's close anyways. But it's felt all the way back to the healers and the mages in the back. This is not natural. It hits the ground and the dust, dirt blows up. As you can imagine, something hits the ground with that much force. Dirt and dust blows up into the air. It's already windy and everything's getting blown all over the place. And all the sound starts to die down. And get quiet. Mercy's standing there watching. Artemis and Lucas partway into the battle announced that everybody's just kind of frozen. Artemis looks to her, looks to her side and she's in the uh, Aliana, the cleric, is beside her again. With a odd look on her face. 
As the dust settles in the center of this valley, there is a large, you could say crater. I want to stress that this is not the type of crater you would normally expect from a meteor. It's not that deep. Maybe two feet at its deepest in the center. But it's a perfect circle. And the crater itself is a perfectly smooth. Like someone, imagine there was some mud on the ground and you took a baseball and just dabbed it and made that perfectly smooth little shape in the mud before it fills itself back up again. You would normally expect it to go much deeper and rock to be thrown all out. None of that happens. It's unnatural in the way. It's almost like the, a rock never hit the ground because there's no sign of a rock. There's no sign of anything that would have caused a thing of that big except this whole dip crater, if you will, appears to have a blue rune. Imagine a circle rune, right? So you're looking down at this and the whole thing has a very intricate circled rune with like a circle around the outside and then magical symbols and runes and such and there are multiple of them. And it's pulsating with blue light. And standing in the center of it is a man dressed all in blue robes. All over those robes are silver lines matching the same type of runes and white flame of magic. Kind of, just, kind of an aura is wafting off of the guy. Aliana looks at Artemis and says, The keeper walks among us. When I say she looks in an odd voice, or an odd look on her face, not ODD, A-W-E-D, odd look on her face. She, she whispers, the keeper walks among us. There's silence from everyone on both sides of the battlefield, staring at this man. He's kind of down on one knee and he stands up. He's facing Ormond at this point. He's wearing blue robes. Again, to silver. He's glowing. And that pulsating rune that he's standing in doesn't seem to be fading. That's enough. It's heard by everyone. As if the person speaking it was standing right in front of them. No matter where you are on the battlefield, both sides hear those two words. That's enough. Facing Oramon and its army. Everyone hears the figure's voice again. This battle is over. Leave. Leave and you may keep your lives. I will not ask you again. Ormanian general sees this as some type of trick from Serenity. Powerful spell from one of their mages. Orders again his people to attack. And the forces of Ormon begin to move forward. Not running, but at a decent pace. The figure moves his hands in an intricate design, creating another blue rune floating in the air in front of him. When the rune is done, he pushes it. As he does, it expands in size, and a huge wave of energy, as it increases, goes flying towards the Ormanian. Hundreds of soldiers knocked back through the air, literally sent tossed, like someone just went... Whoosh. Hundreds, if not weapons, armors, horses, up in the air like they're nothing, tossed back over the bodies of their countrymen. Soldiers stop. 
This battle is over, and you have lost. Go. Return home. Take this gift of your lives that I give you, and remember this moment. You will never set foot on these grounds again. You will never again come in anger towards Serenity, or all of you will die. The general is confused, as are the soldiers, but with one single wave of his hand, he sent almost a thousand men flying, and he's standing there, and his hands are just kind of not doing anything special. The general doesn't have anything to fight that. He talks to his clerics, Pandora, like, what is this? What are you going on? They're like, we don't know what this is, but whatever that is, it is just sending out waves of power. The amount of magic that's coming from that dude is almost blowing us over. We don't have anything that can compete with that. The general's furious, but he's afraid sending in more is just going to get his people slaughtered. He has no choice but to call for a retreat. Ormond slowly turns and begins marching away from the valley. As you can imagine, Serenity's blown away by this. But as they're leaving, they hear one more thing. Tell the Emperor his time is over. Go back and tell him what's happened. Tell him he's done. You tell that bastard I'm coming for him. Armand grabs what injured they can and starts to lug their way out of here. Serenity, standing there, not knowing what's going on, the blue figure turns and starts walking towards Serenity. Now, just in instinct, everybody's like, whoa, takes a step back, like, what are you going to do to us? And he just starts walking. Serenity's soldiers move to the side, allowing him to walk through, and he's walking directly towards Mercy. As he moves closer, and the Ormond's leaving, Serenity people start to cheer. They get to realize, hey, we, we're not going to die. This is successful. Oh, my God. That, whatever that was saying, people start to cheer. There's literally a, oh, my God, we're going to make it. The realization that this battle is over, and those who still stand will live through it. As the man walks closer towards Mercy, the magical fire and flames on him dulls down. He stops glowing quite as much, even though his robes still have a bit of that glow on him. He walks up and stands before Mercy and smiles. Mercy is blown away. Hello, Tobias. You may remember Tobias. was a friend that uh, they went into the sands with long, long ago. She doesn't know what to say. This man just single-handedly saved her kingdom. And he looks at her, he steps close, and he says, Do you remember your promise? Remember the promise you made me? Mercy doesn't have to think. She remembers. She remembers that conversation in the cave, in another world, in another time. She nods and he smiles. Then it's time we it's time we do what we both need to have finished. We both need to do what needs to be finished. It's time. 
that we kill the emperor. And that's where we'll stop for today. <clears throat> so, this battle was a big thing we built up to for a long time. Through a lot of seeds and hints in the story of this coming, a lot of the different things that I'd put into other adventures and stories had all kind of built up to this. This battle was the big thing that Serenity has been preparing for since the day it first became a kingdom. Um, this, this was what Mercy's main goal in life was, was to protect these people and give them a uh, safe haven and place to live, especially from Oromon. Um, and in this, what was their greatest battle, uh, thankfully to the assistance of a long-lost friend, they were successful. Um, there were still a lot of deaths, a lot of injured. Uh, the healers will be busy on the field for quite a while. Um, taking care of you, trying to save those who they can. But uh, when we start up again next week, we'll be, leave, we'll be starting from that exact spot because obvious uh, Tobias is holding mercy to a promise that she made long ago. Um, what is he doing here? How is he doing what he's doing? Why did the cleric of time refer to him as the keeper? What is a keeper? I mean, I'm a keeper. But in the game, what is a keeper? And why is this incredibly powerful cleric of time blown away by their friend Tobias? We're going to talk about that next week. Uh, because this, this entire chapter is going to deal with one main storyline. They want to permanently defeat, <clears throat> kill the Emperor of Ormond. Which is no easy task, even for their friend Tobias. Obviously, there will be many things that have to be done. And we're going to talk about that. But this campaign, this chapter of the story, uh, is designed to bring some finality to the Oromon Serenity issue. Or that entire storyline. So, this campaign is going to... Uh, decide how that's going to end once and for all. So, hopefully you guys like it. Today there was a lot of reading, I know. Um, there was a lot of reading to set this up. Uh, I remember it took me... I was writing this stuff for weeks. We were still playing uh, the dream sequence while I was writing this. Um, but this... This this is one of these... And I, I know I'm running a couple minutes late. I'm trying not to go too long, but... Uh, I've talked about in the past where sometimes I hear a song and it inspires something story-wise. Uh, I use music a lot when I'm, when I'm writing my stories and my adventures. Um, certain songs, sometimes it's a lyric or just a mood of a song. Um, there was a song that I heard long before I even wrote this part, but it gave me the idea of this part of the story. Um, I started, I, my whole plan for this Tobias thing, whatever is going on to happen. Um, I figured that back out when he was still a prisoner in Ormond. I knew this was going to happen one day. I just had to figure out the story beats to get him here. Um, but the thought was inspired by a song um, called Fix Me by a band called Ten Years. Um, one of the main clerics is, I'm fine in the fire. I feed... 
It's it's a really good song. I, I I'm not gonna. I just dawned on me if I if I start saying it somehow the video might get flagged for me stealing their music, but. Uh, Fine in the fire is one of the lines of the, the first line of the of the course. I would highly recommend if you have a moment, check that out. I'm sure it's on YouTube, Apple Music. But uh, "Fix Me" by Ten Years uh, is the song that inspired that. That's that has always been my Tobias song. Um, so just something I throw out there. If you guys want to take a couple minutes, hear a song that drastically inspired one of the main uh, characters and story beats. Uh, all of this was based was inspired by that song. So uh, hopefully some of you will check it out and tell me what you think. But we've been running 10, uh, it's 10.45. We've gone right about regular time, a little bit late. But I'm going to call that a day. We will be back again next Thursday for more Murder's Worlds. Thank you all so very much uh, for letting me tell my tale. I'm not going to lie, there's a couple parts in that. I got a little choked up because I remember how important it was to us back in the day. I had to pause a couple times in there and hope you guys didn't realize I was getting choked up. Uh, but I was. This, was. this was very important to us at the time. Um... And getting to share the whole story, especially as we're just building up and we're moving into the future of these people's lives. Uh, in my opinion, this is always really serious, big stuff for us at the time. So hopefully you're enjoying it as well. Uh, but thank you very much for coming. If you like what you saw or heard today, please be sure to click like, whether you're watching it today or 10 years down the road. I always keep up with it, and I appreciate it. Um, if you're listening to this on Spotify or iTunes, again, thank you very much as well for listening to the audio. Uh, again, you can subscribe to these on iTunes or Spotify. You can click, if you want, wouldn't mind swinging by, clicking a like on there. Even if you're not really going to listen to them, but you use those things, it'd be awesome if you wouldn't mind giving them a follow or a sub. Uh, those things do matter. <laughs> Uh, I don't make any money off those by any means, but the whole goal is the more people that do that, the more it'll be suggested to other people on there. And I just want as many people to hear my story as I can because I'm proud of it. Um, if you want to leave a, a review, I know you can do that on iTunes. I'm not sure if you do that on Spotify. That'd be awesome, but uh, you know you don't have to. And I would never want somebody to, if you haven't listened to it, don't do that, of course. Uh, don't lie. <laughs> but um, thank you. Either way, uh, coming back to me every week and let me keep telling this because it's my favorite thing I get to do. Uh, so thank you for coming by. Special thank you, as always, uh, to my members. We've had uh, several renewals tonight, you'll see, uh, popped up where people had renewed their membership or auto-renewed. So thank you very much for being a part of that. Um, it means a lot, your support of the channel, as well as uh, all those wonderful people who've been donating and tipping to the channel lately. Uh, again, your support is overwhelmingly appreciated. Let's me do more Merge World stuff, so thank you. I don't know if you noticed, see my new poster? I, I, as much as I love my Keanu poster, I, I thought I should have the name of the channel up there somewhere. So I ordered a poster off of my own store. <laughs> I bought one of my own products uh, so I could have a poster up on the wall. On my website, onlydraven.com, on the ODG store, posters, t-shirts. Obviously, I'm wearing the same shirt. There's uh, Merge World stuff on there. I'm thinking about getting a new Merge World design done. I have an idea for one I might like to put up there. Um, so, something to think about. Uh, but, yeah. My website's got links to all my socials, all that stuff, my streaming schedule. If you'd like to see what a lot of these characters look like, on my website there's a tab called Characters. If you click on that, you'll see little minis I've painted on Hero Forge of a lot of these characters. Uh, see what Sir Nyklos looks like if you want to. Uh, we also have an Instagram account where I post those minis uh, usually a couple of weeks. So thank you all for coming by. Extra special thank you to my moderators for putting up with all my crap. Uh, but I love all you all very much. Thank you so much. I know I keep saying that, but I really, really do appreciate you guys being here and let me tell the story. So I'm going to stop saying thank you now and let you guys get on with your lives. I hope you all have yourselves a wonderful evening, a wonderful upcoming weekend, and hopefully we'll see you here again next week for a little bit more Merge Worlds. You guys have yourselves a great day. Mm -hmm.